You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, true believers, this is Stan Lee. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I've had a lot of strange experiences after all these years in the film business, but I have to say the Fantastic Four ranks somewhere near the top. It's clobber time. Like a phantom in this film. Strange. It was like a feeling that I've never experienced before. It's a piece of history. I never would have thought then, was it 20 years later, that I'd be sitting here talking about it. This thing just won't die. Expect trouble. I didn't know then, you know, all of the machinery that had been at work. It was the seedy, dark side of Hollywood. We really wanted people to see this. How many movies did Roger Corman make and never release? One. Wait a minute. Why? We're going to let them take this movie away from us and not get anything out of it? we got to show people that we made a movie. That's how you get another job. All this effort and time and all these, all the work that went into making that film. And that pointless. Meaningless. This film was never really intended to be a film. And I said, oh yeah, you watch. I think this documentary is, is I think it's about time. Hopefully, it might be like the last piece of this whole puzzle. The great untold, never seen version, the original Fantastic Four. Finally, after 20 years, this story is going to be told. Unfortunately, this version of the Fantastic Four really was doomed. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. And the Hollywood sign said, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Also with us this week is Mr. Rod Lott. Rob, Rod, this is going to get confusing. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. The 2016 documentary reveals the making of and some of the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans involved in the 1994 version of The Fantastic Four that has never been officially released. Rob, when was the first time that you heard about this 1994 version of The Fantastic Four? I believe I heard of it uh, probably around the time it was made, and I think that I may have have seen parts of or at least sections of it and the VHS tapes at the old Comic Cons because there used to be a very small version of Motor City Comic Con which is now huge here in Detroit it used to be in like a one ballroom at a Hilton somewhere I can't remember exactly but uh, when I was in my early teens when I was still reading comic books in the early 90s one of the things that's funny in here is they show you a scene from a comic book convention and the rows and rows of tapes and then of course rows and rows of DVDs which uh, was how you used to watch all this bootleg stuff. Like I remember buying a copy of, I think, Eraserhead that way because it was hard to get years ago. I felt a little nostalgia for my youth because now anyone can get anything through a BitTorrent site or um, through YouTube. So I I think it was probably in in the early 1990s. Now, have you ever seen this 1994 version of The Fantastic Four? After I watched the documentary, I really wanted to watch it, but being as busy as I am, I have not taken the time. Although I do uh, know that I think there's several different versions, or at least uh, several different uh, uh, links up on YouTube, so you can't watch the whole thing. How about you, Rod? When did you first hear about the movie, and did you ever see it? Yes, the 
first time I heard about it was when it was, I believe, on the cover of Film Threat, uh, when they did the whole big multi-page full-color spread on the making of it, which I, Chris Gore talks about in the documentary. And I remember waiting for it to come out, never coming out. And it was the first bootleg I ever purchased. I, I was big into the VHS tape trading, but uh, when I heard that it was available as a bootleg, and I want to say maybe it was in the pages of Psychotronic that I saw an ad or something, I uh, went to the local grocery store, got a money order. It was the first time I ever got a money order as well, and sent off my 20 bucks for a VHS copy. And I have watched it twice since then. And I kind of really find it charming. Uh, it definitely has the budgetary problems. It, some of it is unintentionally funny, especially that last scene, which they do talk about extensively in the documentary. But, you know, for what it is, it is definitely kind of charming. It kind of grows on me, even, even to this day. I think I also first heard of the movie from that film threat uh, issue. I want to say I, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a bad boy. I'm, I'm a rebel dotty. I'd gotten caught uh, racing one of my friends home from uh, work at Comcast uh, and uh, ended up having to go to traffic school. So I remember sitting in the classroom of traffic school with that issue of film thread and reading about the fantastic four. And I don't know if I was necessarily that excited about it. Cause I have to say that it looked really super cheesy and just like the costumes and stuff. I was like, well, maybe this could be good, but I'm not really sure. And I just kept like thinking about how they're going to do the stretching effects for Mr. Fantastic. And I don't know if they necessarily pulled it off, but yeah, it was years and years until I finally happened to get a copy of it. I think it, it was probably one of those tape trading things where I was like, it's finally time that I sit down and watch this. And yeah, it's goofy. I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's fantastic. Then after watching the 2005 version I really liked the 1994 version after seeing the 2005 version. To be honest, all of these newer versions of the Fantastic Four, I have not seen because I have just heard that they're horrible. Like everybody I know who has seen them has not been that enamored with what uh, Marvel has done since, you know, the last 10 years with this uh, franchise, which is kind of sad because uh, it's one of those great team franchises like X-Men, I think, that uh, could do pretty well. I've seen all of them, and for me, they go on a definite downward slope, just like you could draw a straight line. I do think the Corman version is the best, and I was looking forward to it, Mike, even, even though I shared the same thoughts as you where those costumes are cheap. I can see the scenes, which they do bring up in Doomed as well. But back then, you know, there was Superman and Batman, and I guess Batman Returns had come out too, but that was really it. We weren't in the superhero movie stage where there's one coming out every two or three weeks that we are in today. So the thought of even getting one was pretty unique because back then, most of them just went were made for TV. Yeah, I really think that superheroes in that time were TV. I mean, they even talk about it in, in the documentary, Doomed, as, you know, there was Wonder Woman, Incredible Hulk, and things like that. And those seemed to do well on TV, but for some reason, they never really made them for the theater. And the only thing 
was eventually made uh, comic book wise, and we've already talked about this on the show, was in '89 with the Tim Burton Batman, and then what? It took them three years finally to do uh, a sequel to that because Burton had to be kind of coaxed back into doing it. Back then, I I think there was still sort of this um, feeling that either comics were too niche or it was too childish uh that that was the realm of like the low budgets and in, in a certain way i find it kind of interesting that it was corman's production company that made the film because a lot of the stuff that corman did in the 50s and 60s that the major studios didn't want to touch they would later kind of do the same thing just on bigger budgets like you can't tell me that some of those uh, ridiculous outer space movies are really all that different from say maybe a michael bay movie it's really interesting to look back at the history of the Marvel and the DC movies and franchises because people, you know, here we are talking about this stuff and we're not bringing up the 1990 Captain America, which we've talked about on the show before. And there's a good reason for that. You know, that it, it, it was really the opposite of the way that it is today where DC had their shit together. They were able to make a Superman, a Superman 2, again, kind of diminishing returns as we go along there. They were able to make a bad Batman and the Batman Returns, and again after that, kind of diminishing returns. But they were able to make these films, whereas Marvel was doing like there was a Nick Fury TV movie, there was a Doctor Strange TV movie, there was this Captain America movie, and there were just they they weren't necessarily well. There was how is Howard the Duck? Let's not forget that that was kind of a Marvel movie, but. So they didn't have their act together when it came to their properties, and the rights were all kind of spread out with all these different people. There was the attempted uh, version of Spider-Man that Canon was supposed to make. Just all of these things were going on where they didn't know their heads from their ass. And then it's like finally, just a few years ago, they kind of struck gold. I mean, yes, there were like little blips on the radar, things like Blade and things like that, but now it's, you know, it's a behemoth. We can't go a summer without two or three of these Marvel films, which is kind of nuts. And now DC has just the opposite problem of they don't know how the hell to make these movies. You know, they've got a madman at the controls with, with Zach Penn, and it's just like, guys, these movies really suck, and they need to they need to get on board the Marvel train, whereas Marvel needed to get on the DC train all those years ago. Zack Snyder is who you mean. Zach Penn wrote a bunch. Of oh my Marvel bad. <laughs> but uh, but DC now, you know, they they've got the TV thing sewn up. Well, Marvel's got their hand in the theaters, but um, yeah, I mean, that, you're right. The situation is flipped. And the Fantastic Four, the Corman version, I find that, that maybe it's good that it didn't get released to theaters because it really does work well on the TV. It really does have a lot in common with like the Spider-Man series of the 70s, where the costumes look like they were literally homemade. I don't remember Nicholas Hammond being the best actor when it came to those that Spider-Man television series. But I have to say that the acting is pretty good in this Fantastic Four film, and that I actually like some of the characters. I like the Doctor Doom a lot. When I can understand what he's saying, I think that he's pretty good Doctor Doom. I think that he's better than the other Doctor Dooms that have come since him. But I wanted to ask you guys, as far as the documentary, Doomed, what you guys thought about that. I really liked it, and I've been looking forward to this documentary for at least a year when I first heard about it. It really is kind of all that I wanted it to be. It, um, it's not a hatchet job, but at the same time, it's also not just a, you know, a 
self-gratification type of thing. It, it really does tell the story and it acknowledges that, yeah, the movie's got its more than its fair share of problems, but like we've said, it's not terrible. And they really were trying to do something uh, with the million dollars that they had. And it's, it is kind of sad that it didn't get released. But, you know, when you think about like uh, the actor who plays the thing, putting his own money into touring the nation to promote the movie and them not even being told what was going on with the release. And, you know, they, they were all counting on this to be their big breakthrough and that just never arrived. And that's kind of sad. And it's, um, in a way the documentary is really touching. Not like it moved me to tears or anything, but it, it's more affecting than I certainly thought it would be. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I mean, I went in knowing that the film was made, it wasn't released. I didn't know the particulars as to why, because I hadn't had an interest in kind of researching it. But just hearing the stories of the actors who were like, you know, we went and we did this and we and and the director even who's like, look, you know, I thought I was making a real film. I, I didn't think this was some sort of, you know, BS exercise so that these guys could do whatever they had to do through these back channels in terms of money and rights and all of that other stuff. Uh, it you really feel for them because they tried as hard as they could to do something <laughs> And really, like you said, invest their own energy, invest their own money, their own time, much more than anyone would ever do for a Hollywood picture. I mean, uh, if this was a, a big budget film, <laughs> there's no way that um, anyone would probably go out of their way to promote the film in the manner in which they did, as you discussed. I enjoy that they acknowledge that the movie is imperfect, but they also do give some good reasons for some of that. I mean, the whole idea of the struggle that they had to find a good effects house and the first guy that they hired kind of sold himself as being really something that he wasn't. I, I appreciated that they really seemed to take a long look at themselves. Nobody was like patting themselves on the back and just like, this was the, the best thing since sliced bread. But they deserve a chance. You know, that was the thing is just like, did this movie deserve to be killed? And at the end of the day, when I'm watching this film, I'm like, no, no. Cause I've, we've seen worse. We've seen worse. Fantastic four movies. I, I agree with you, Rod, that it does seem like it plays better on television. I don't necessarily think I can't really picture this playing theatrically, but it might be fun to see it theatrically, but Seeing it now all these years later when we're kind of catching up with it after it is on the, the bootleg circuit and now on the BitTorrent or the YouTube channel, it plays very well on a television set. I'm glad that people have seen it because I hate that none of them made money off of it. It sounds like only Roger Corman made out on that deal. But they seem to be okay with it. They seem to have done their grieving and moved past it. And even the actor, again, who plays the thing, says he would just do it all over again. He would gladly waste all that money. He didn't consider it a waste, but he would gladly do it all over again. He doesn't regret it. And I think, I mean, that's, that's really admirable. These guys could have come in with, uh, you know, sharpening the knives, and they chose not to do that. Though I do like that as the movie goes on, they're not necessarily pulling any punches when it comes to 
Roger Corman's involvement with this because it, it, he did make a little cash off of this. He was able to secure the rights, probably able to sell the rights, all of these kind of things. So, yeah, he seems to be the only one at the end of the day who managed to have anything good come out of it, though – I have to say that it sounds like there's a lot of good friendships that kind of came out of this. It, it uh, sounds like all of these guys were in the heat of combat when it came to trying to make this movie together. So nobody has anything bad to say about each other when it comes to how the movie was put together, the actors, all this kind of stuff. They're in this shitty barn studio with, that was condemned, but everybody seemed to kind of pull together. It felt like almost like an Andy Hardy thing listening to this. Stan Lee doesn't come off so hot, but you know I've, I've heard a lot about that, so that, that's right in line with what I hear. And I was glad that they had the footage of him. And yeah, the way he puts it down and everything, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's a little tacky. Did you do the same thing on the sets of other films? Yeah, if he didn't have a cameo, <laughs> that seems to be the, the through line there. And uh, also about the friendships, you know, the uh, director getting another job from the producer of this movie. I mean, that, that not Roger Corman, but the, the other money guy. You know, that says everything about how they all worked well together. I mean, this could have turned into room full of spoons fairly easily. It could have been like we had a madman at the helm. We had a, a horrible script. We didn't know what we were doing. Here's all of these poor actors that were pulled in, and they, they're just trying to suffer through you know, the making of this film. And it ends up becoming some sort of cult object you know, years and years later. But fortunately... It, Definitely didn't seem like that. In fact, everybody seems to have nice things to say about the director, which is fantastic. There you go again, using it. I know, I know, I'm terrible. Jeez. One of the uh, things that I learned in here, in uh, sort of the lead-up to this being created, there's an interview in there with uh, our good friend uh, Lloyd Kaufman talking about how they came to Troma to ask them to make the Fantastic Four film, and he knew that it was way out of the budget and there was no way he could do it on uh, that kind of price. And plus, he kind of talked about his own uh, friendship with Stan Lee and sort of figured that politically that wasn't such a good idea either. So, uh, so he passed on it. This is actually the second time that I've heard that he's passed on a film that would have been maybe a step up in some way from a producer, and I'm sure there may have been a few others over the years, uh, this one being the second, the first one being uh, the sequel to Pink Flamingos that John Waters wrote in the early 1980s. I had no idea that even existed. Yeah, the script is available in um, a book that Waters put out called Trash Trio, and it's called Flamingos Forever. And uh, I think it's in one of the books that Lloyd wrote where he talked about Waters had come to him and they were going to try to do this Pink Flamingo sequel. But it was a matter of, once again, money. And then I think Divine died. And then that was it. So it didn't happen. So it was a combination of factors. Now, were you guys fans of the Fantastic Four comic book? I read a lot of DC and Marvel comic books growing up. And I had some of the Fantastic Four, uh, not a great number. The Avengers was more of my speed on the Marvel end. But yeah, I, I did enjoy them. I knew I knew who the characters were, but I didn't have any great affinity for them like I did, say, Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, I would read an issue from time to time, but I was reading more like X-Men and um, Punisher and things like that. Fantastic Four were actually one of my first comic books, if memory serves. 
though I didn't fall in love with them the way that I would fall in love with the X-Men or Spider-Man. Those two were my go-to, but I have to say that I actually really liked the Thing series that they put out where he was away from the rest of the Fantastic Four. And I mean, it was kind of like what they did with Hulk years later, where they kind of put him on his own thing. I want to say he was even on his, uh, a different planet. But I liked the way that they would rotate people in and out of the Fantastic Four then, like She-Hulk and these kind of people. But Mr. Fantastic always just seemed a little too smart for his own good. It's like he... If there was a problem, yo, he'd solve it, and it just seemed like there was nothing that he couldn't do. Okay, I was up all last night, and I think I've come up with a great name for the group. Since we all have such fantastic powers, I think we should be called the Fantastic Four. Ooh, Fantastic Four. All right. That sounds like good. That. I like that. Yeah, and I have come up with uh, individual names as well, if I may. Ben Grimm, mm-hmm. you are a rock-like thing of a man. You will be called The Thing. Great. Sue Storm... You're a woman who has the power to make herself invisible. The Invisible Woman is your name from now on. Good. Johnny Storm, mm-hmm. you are human, and yet you are a torch. Yeah. The Human Torch. The Human Torch, okay. And I, Reed Richards, can stretch my body like a rubber band. I will be Mr. Fantastic. Okay, let's get on to business. First order of business for the Fantastic Four. Uh, Dr. Reed? Doom has the entire world's plutonium Reed. supply... And Excuse huh? me for a second. Yes, Ben. Um, oh, never mind. Never mind. What is it, Ben? It's nothing. It's nothing. Nothing. Ben, we have to speak openly here. Well, it's just about the names. How uh-huh. do you like yours? The thing. No, I'm I'm fine with that. It just <laughs> seems a little. Well, I'm kind of a thing of a man. You're calling me the thing. Uh huh. Sue is a woman who can become invisible. She's the invisible woman. Makes sense. Johnny is human, yet a torch. So he's the human torch, right? Sure. And you can stretch your arms like a rubber band. Uh-huh. And you've named yourself Mr. Fantastic. Yes, Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Just Uh-oh. seems a little, little odd, you know. Yeah. I don't understand the problem. <laughs> I mean, we're all named after our powers. Right. But your power is to stretch like a rubber band. Right. That's why I come up with the idea, Mr. Fantastic. It's a fantastic ability I have. Right. No one, no one's saying it's not fantastic. I mean, many people, when they see me stretch, they often use that word, fantastic. I think what Ben's trying to say, Ben, right, is that um, we all have fantastic powers, but we're called what we do. Right. Yours is stretching. Maybe Mr... Stretch guy. Stre- I was thinking well, stretch. But the, that's my name. Right, El okay. Stretcho. El Stretcho. No, 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 not El Stretcho. No, it's Mr. Fantastic is my name, okay? Now, if you guys have problems with your names, we can talk about it. My name is Mr. Fantastic. Let's talk about Dr. Doom. And then the other thing with them was this whole... We have to fight Galactus and, you know, the Silver Surfer. They didn't fight the Silver Surfer. Well, maybe they did. But just the, the they were an entree into these larger God-type stories where it was just like, it got to be a little bit old after a while. It was just like, how many times are they going to go up against Galactus? And, I mean, thank God Galactus was actually like a, an, you know, he had a, a body and a, a voice and everything. He wasn't just a, a gaseous cloud, <laughs> but but he was a real deal, you know. I actually tolerated Rise of the Silver Surfer, the second 
Fantastic Four movie, but they still didn't have their act together. It was still such a mess, but nowhere near the mess that the 2005 or 2015 was. No, that 2015 one is trash. I'm sure that the original cut was terrific. So he says, so he tweets. I just can't see it. I I don't know. I just no. can't see it coming back from the from the brink. I mean, even without all those areas where the, you know, the one actress is wearing that horrible wig and stuff, it's like you can kind of really tell where stuff was reshot and the original stuff just doesn't seem like it would have been that good. It's awful. You know, in the X-Men movies when the 20th Century Fox logo comes up and as it fades to black, they hold the X for just a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, on the the newest Fantastic Four, the Fox logo fades to black. They they hold on the F for just a second, and that seems to sum up the entire movie ahead of time. This is a big fat F. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the the thing that gets me about the 1994 version of the film is that. The Thing costume, to me, is better than anything that they've done since then. So much better than the all-CGI thing that they were doing in 2015. Better than that horrible costume that Michael Chiklis was wearing in the the two uh, mid-2000 movies. Animatronics and, you know, rubber suit really kind of brought it together for me. Yeah, I agree totally. I still think practical effects are more often than not the way to go. I do miss them. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Thing costume is, ironically, best of all in the the cheapest version. I won't say the same thing for the Mr. Fantastic effects, but... (laughs) You know, one thing that I want to bring up, everyone makes fun of the, the end of the Corman movie where Mr. Fantastic's arm waves awkwardly from the limousine window. And that is pretty funny. In the first real Fantastic Four movie, you have the joke, Mr. Fantastic, in the toilet and using his superpowers to stretch his arm to get more toilet paper. Do you remember that? Everyone in the theater really laughed at that. And I remember that was a gag from Sergio Aragona's cartoon in Mad from like the 70s. They used that. So they stole that from Mad Magazine. And that always bothered me. Because it was funnier in print. And at least we didn't get to see Sue Storm being completely humiliated and, you know, forced to strip down to her bra and panties invisibly and then come back all of a sudden so that we could see the actress in her bra and panties like they did to Jessica Alba. I mean, come on. It was terrible. I wouldn't go that far. Well, it's nice to look at her, but come on. It's just, (laughs) it was so so wrong and then putting Jessica Alba you know making her a blonde and everything it was just like come on yeah she was not right all right we're going to take a break and play three interviews the first is with director Marty Langford the second is with the man who played the thing Carl Ciafalio and the third is with the I suppose you would call him the unit publicist Chris Gore and we will be back with those after these brief messages just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, 
And when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr. And when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, Bernie Taupin here. And when I'm not undermining Venezuela, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Imri Stunt Double, and when I'm not wanking for tumours, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there, I'm Ali Sheedy, and when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the popcorn Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week, we choose a movie based on a monthly theme, and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. I want to know a little bit more about you. How did you get into film and filmmaking? I've wanted to be a filmmaker for as long as I can remember. My big thing was stop motion. I would make these little stop motion movies. You know, these uh, you take your superhero characters, your Mego characters, or your your Battlestar Galactica character, uh, Galactica char- uh, characters, and you know, you do your little stop motion things where you move them here, you move them there, they disappear, you. Uh, have them walk around and fight. And I just loved the act of controlling things in front of a camera from behind the camera, you know? So uh, the filmmaking was just always something I was interested in from a young kid. And as I got kind of further along, I recognized that it was something that people did to make a living, you know? It was a job. Uh, Of course, later on, I found out that it's not the kind of job that one can make a career out of in in Western Massachusetts where I live and uh, where I was brought up. But I I ended up working in the kind of corporate commercial video world where I would do uh, TV commercials. Uh, This time of year, I do a lot of political spots even to this day. 
where I ended up falling into uh, was teaching, which is uh, what I do now. I'm a full-time professor uh, of film studies at American International College here in Springfield, Mass. Were you a big comic book fan growing up? Uh, always, always, always. I'm a DC guy, which I guess is funny seeing that my the, the documentary is on Marvel property, but uh, yeah, I love comic books, you know, and then you, you tend to find that uh, people who are really into comics uh, oftentimes have that uh, I don't. I hate using the word creative, saying like I'm creative, you know. But we tend to like to indulge ourselves in playing around with the concept of of superheroes and, and comic book characters, whether we write, you know, fan fiction or make stop motion, you know, movies with uh, the Hulk battling Batman with our Mego characters. The two just seem to go hand in hand throughout my life. When was the first time you heard about this Fantastic Four film? I had a bit of. Uh, an advantage over most people. Mark Sykes, uh, who was the executive producer of Doomed, was my, you know, was my childhood friend. Mark and his dad owned a comic book store in downtown Springfield, and and I worked there from when I was, uh, you know, goodness, probably 13 or 14 till, uh, you know, till I was a young adult. And Mark, back in the early 90s, he too was a comic book guy and a movie guy. He moved out to California, had like 10 grand, just packed up and moved out there. And within a year, was working for Roger Corman at Concord New Horizons as, you know, first an intern. And then, you know, he answered phones as a receptionist. And in 92, he was uh, the casting assistant. He was kind of a receptionist slash casting assistant. So Mark was on the ground floor. And, you know, we interview Mark in the documentary, of course. And it was through Mark that I first heard that, you know, Marty, dude, we're, we're, making, a, we're making a Fantastic Four movie. Uh, and I was blown away. And within, and I forget exactly how much time passed until that film threat cover came out. Chris Gore's magazine, Chris too, we interviewed for the uh, the film. Chris uh, was on set of the Fantastic Four every day. You know, he was there every day. He was an invaluable resource. So when that film threat issue came out, when I finally saw them, you know, in color, in costume, it was amazing. But Mark, uh, you know, let me know pretty early on what was happening. So the roots of this project go back all the way when this actually started. It absolutely does. And I mean, like you and like him, I mean, what, what you'll find out is Mark, you know, as, a, as an employee of Roger Corman's, along with, you know, every cast member and everybody on the crew, they didn't know what was going on when, you know, this movie just kind of started to languish. It was a rush to get started, um, which, you know, most of us kind of know about the fact that, you know, Roger uh, was hired to produce the movie to to save the option from a company called Constantine Films, a German company who owned the rights. And if he didn't start rolling cameras by, you know, 12 midnight on December 31st, 1992, he was going to lose the rights. Constantine was going to lose the rights. So Roger, you know, pulled it off. And Mark was, again, in those casting rooms from... You know, September, actually it was later than that. I think the first casting sessions took place in October. So when you think about these guys being cast uh, around mid-October, late October, to when they actually started filming it on uh, December 28th, it was fast. That urgency soon uh, wore off when uh, they finished the film in, in late January. So how often are you getting kind of updates on this as you're back in Massachusetts and Mark's out in California? Not as often as you'd think. Uh, and you're talking about back in 92, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was a busy guy. You know, Mark was uh, like, you know, anybody working for, for Corman was, was doing 100 jobs at once. And, you know, we would talk maybe, I don't even, I would say probably not much more <clears throat> than once or twice a month. 
So it wasn't as though it was this constant, oh, today on the set we did this, and yesterday on the set this happened. You know, we didn't have the internet, of course, but it wasn't kind of a daily update. It was more of, you know, well, once or twice a month he'd fill me in on, on, on where it was going and how far along in post-production it was. Once they kind of pulled the plug on things, I mean, it doesn't even sound like there was an official plug pulling. It seems like more like, no. oh, we'll get to this eventually and just kind of sweep it under the rug. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, uh, the story is amazing. You know, I mean, it's it's a cool story, the story of this movie, because of kind of, you know, because of what happened, because of the intrigue and the mystery and the, the shenanigans. But to hear Oli Sassone, uh, the director, and Glenn uh, Garland, who was the editor, you know, after they shot, it was just these two guys, you know, holed up in medicine suite. And yeah, very quickly, they started to lose support and they started to lose that urgent, let's get this thing done while they were toiling away, trying to get, you know, effect shots done. Corman had moved on to other things and they slowly started to realize that, you know, something's, something's going on here. So what's the impetus for you to finally say, or, or, or you and your partner to say, okay, let's make this documentary. It was going to be a book project. I was interested in, in the story all along. I love comic books. I love movies. And I, I guess I have a thing for, you know, unmade movies or lost films uh, that's always really, really interested me. And I had the idea to write a book about it and uh, reached out to Mark. Uh, and even though we maintained a friendship, you know, we, we only spoke a few times a year. And, uh, and I, I got this book idea and I, I contacted him and I'm like, listen, could you help me out to reach some of these people? And by this time, you know, Mark is a, a full-fledged casting director out in L.A. now. And it made it very easy for him to reach out to people, you know, who are desperate for work. You know, the phone rings and it's a casting director. Everybody picks up who's an actor. And Mark was able to get these guys all. I mean, he did an amazing job just, you know, rallying the troops and getting contact information and getting, you know, confirmations that, yeah, these people are interested. But after a week or so, I'd written a sample chapter. I'd given them a table of contents. You know, at the time I was, you know, an active filmmaker, but it just, it never dawned on me to make a documentary because my first thought was, well, we can't use the movie, you know? We can't use clips from the movie. It's just going to be a bunch of talking heads. A book, I felt, lent itself a little better to the idea, but Mark was like, you know, screw it. Let's, let's use the movie. You know, what's, what's the worst that's going to happen? Are we going to get sued? Are they going to get injunctions? There's going to be ceases and desists. Let's, let's just do it and, and, uh, and see how far we can go, and we did. When was the first time that you saw the actual Fantastic Four movie, and what did you think? I remember distinctly seeing it for the first time. I don't remember the year, but based on kind of the research uh, that we did uh, for the movie and talking to you know everybody that was involved in it, uh, we believe the the tape leaked in uh, sometime between like ninety eight, ninety nine, and two thousand, two thousand one, and that was when you started seeing copies on the bootleg circuit, you know, at comic book conventions and movie conventions and. I was at a Fangoria weekend of horrors in New York, and I remember seeing it. I, rem- I can just, I mean, there's so many kind of variations of like the, the, the cover art, you know, these people just drawing pictures of a big four and, and, a, and mimeographing them out and putting them in a clamshell VHS case to some people actually trying to, you know, make something fairly professional looking. But I remember the copy I had, and I remember watching, and I remember loving it. You know, it was charming, and it was fun, and it was light. It has its problems. I'm not going to, you know, overstate, you know, it's not a great movie, but it was a movie that was uh, that was done with heart. You know, that really it really shows. And I enjoyed it. 
I was just blown away by how many people you were able to get to talk about the film. And just that made such a difference. You had such a rich oral history going on with this. Yeah, nobody said no. The only person who was involved in the production who uh, we didn't talk to was Craig Nevius, who was the writer. But we did talk to Craig, and we were set to interview him. And it was he was scheduled, you know. And while we were, while I was out in L.A. Uh, scheduling the interviews, uh, he called one night, and he's like, um, he's like, I'm still willing to do it, but I don't have a lot to add, you know. And we spoke for 10 minutes, and we had already interviewed some people when he kind of uh, told us this, and it became clear that he was just a writer for hire. He was just a guy who worked for like three or four weeks developing a draft, and he was done. To the completest in me, I would have liked to have had the screenwriter. There wasn't much that he was going to add to the story, to the mythos of this. So Craig was one. Stan Lee, we had discussions, I guess, with, like with his people, you know. Uh, ultimately, though, he turned us down. And Stan Lee, he's a player in the story in that he was on set a couple of times and he had uh, interactions with the cast and the crew during production. But we actually use a clip of Stan uh, from a comic book convention where he's talking about the film. It was from 1992 that was given to us by, uh, uh, by a fan uh, that he shot at the convention. And the things that, he, that Stan Lee says kind of you know, uh, dovetail with uh, his opinion of the movie, which is not very high. And he, I think, is kind of ashamed of it, you know, as are a number of people. Uh, and the other person who uh, we couldn't get was Avi Arad, uh, who would have been huge. I mean, Avi was, you know, he ran Marvel, it wasn't Marvel Studios at the time, but the Marvel Entertainment uh, part of Marvel. And uh, he was an incredibly large player as the ultimate plug being pulled on this film, we'll say, came about. We would have loved to have spoken to Avi Arad. But outside of those three people, uh, the Craig, Stanley, and, and Avi, everybody else said, yes, Mike. And they loved it. They wanted to talk. They wanted to get their story out. And they did. Roger Corman doesn't necessarily come off as being, I don't know, that, that big of a supporter of the Fantastic Four movie. Um, what did he think of the documentary? Uh, well, Roger, you know, he allowed us to interview him uh, graciously. Uh, he gave us, uh, oh, goodness, probably about half an hour at his uh, offices in uh, Burbank, I believe it is. And we sat with him, and he was open and honest, and we did a pretty good interview with him. There was a premiere last year at the Arrow Theater uh, where we had a panel, and everybody showed up. There was probably 15 people on the panel, most of the people we interviewed, and Corbin uh, was in attendance. <laughs> Corbin, after about half an hour, uh, it turns out he walked out. And we weren't entirely sure why. It's not that he is portrayed negatively. Uh, I mean, Corman's a businessman, and Corman made business decisions when it came to this movie. But depending on how you kind of explain away the fact that he walked out of our premiere suggests that, yeah, he wasn't too happy with the way he was portrayed. But again, he's a businessman, and the business decisions he made kept his company making money, and it kept his uh, business uh, afloat, you know, regardless of whether or not he uh, liked the movie, he made decisions that he thought were best for Concord New Horizons, and I guess you can't begrudge him that. Yeah, because it kind of seems to fall out of the documentary as it's going along. Like yeah. He's right there at the beginning, and then it just is like, and towards the end, it seems like a lot of people are talking about Roger Corman, but he's not necessarily talking. Yeah, 
he gave us some good stuff to kind of lay the foundation of the story up front in the doc. And it was kind of my decision. I edited the movie, you know, as well as, as directed it. There wasn't a lot that he had to say that fit within the context of our narrative. And quite frankly, it's because if you think about it, you know, an executive producer like Corman, uh, he signs the deal. Uh, he, with Constantine Films, he gets the money through his employees, hires the people that need to make the movie. But he moved on to other things. He wasn't a creative part of this film. He didn't direct it. Uh, he didn't produce it. He was the executive producer, but he wasn't an active line producer. So he had nothing to do with the production of this film. Because of that, he didn't have a hell of a lot to say on the production of it. And he did choose his words carefully. Uh, and they were his statements were kind of you know general and banal and didn't really add to kind of the entry, what we were digging for and trying to get to. But you were right to notice his absence, you know, in a large chunk of the movie. The thing that really kind of got to me in a good way as I was watching the film was just the amount of passion that so many of these people had about making this movie. Just the amount of work that they went through, their kind of hopes that they had pinned to it, and then how they were ultimately dashed. I mean, this is a very, very emotional film. Thank you. Yeah. You know, if I had to identify, you know, those that, 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 that showed that passion in, in, in the movie, uh, Alex Hyde White, who played, you know, Reed Richards, who was the, you know, the lead, he saw this movie as a springboard to a, a huge career. Michael Bailey Smith, who played Ben Grimm, but who didn't play the thing. And that, that, there's an interesting part of the movie where, where we talk about that, where, you know, he, uh, when he was hired, fully intended and fully expected to have that costume made. And when he found out that he wasn't going to be in it, he was pissed. The exact word he used, he's like, ah, I'm pissed. They, and Oli, you know, Sassone, the director, between Alex and Oli, you know, there was a lot of hopes pinned on this in terms of it being a career-making film. Joseph, too, who played Dr. Doom, Joseph Culp, saw it as an opportunity. They, they, they all saw it as an opportunity. They all saw it as this potential franchise. They were looking at Batman that came out a couple years before, Tim Burton's Batman. And they were like, this is huge. Superheroes are huge. I mean, they were, there might have been some delusion in there when, you know, they're making the movie for, you know, a million dollars. That's not easy to do with the effects that a movie like this demands. But yeah, they were excited and they started to get disappointed and ultimately they got screwed. I have read about Doomed for, it feels like a long time. It probably feels longer for you, but when did you guys kind of officially start on this? Uh, it would have been uh, January of 2012. No, January 2013, excuse me. We shot uh, principal photography, would have been uh, in August of 2013. Uh, we shot it in, goodness, uh, we probably had nine shoot days, Mike. You know, all told, we would be you know, a couple of interviews a day. Then I brought back 90 hours worth of footage. And it took me a year and a half, you know, to edit this thing. It wasn't, you know, straight, full-time, eight hours a day cutting. You know, I have a job and this was, you know, uh, didn't pay. But uh, it was a slow process. And then when it came to finding a distributor and then going through the legal which really held us up. I mean, we were in legal for a year, you know, uh, trying to get things cleared, trying to get the rights to footage, uh, trying to do what we had to do to make it so that nobody would sue us. <laughs> and um, I think we managed, uh, but we'll, you know, movie hasn't been released yet, so we'll see. But we haven't had that cease and desist letter come that we'd been expecting from Fox or from Constantine or from Quorum or from Marvel. There's so many entities out there who had a role in this that uh, at any time 
you know, any one of them could have potentially shut us down. That's always just the most amazing thing when it comes to some of these documentaries. And you're like, wow, how did they manage to get the rights for this stuff? So the hoops you had to jump through in order to get everything approved and in order to get that kind of seal approval from your lawyers must have just been amazing. It was, yeah. And it, it cost a lot of money. You know, we're into the lawyers for a lot of money. Our hope is, of course, that, you know, we make it back. We've gotten, uh, we've been so lucky. I mean, we were lucky when... Last year, when the new movie came out, when the, when the the new Fox Fantastic Four reboot came out, because that was just timing was so such that um, we got a lot of press. Uh, we weren't ready to release though. That was right when we were in legal. That would have been nice to strike when the iron was hot. But the press we've gotten in the last week and a half since we announced the release date has been equally stunning. Uncorked uh, Entertainment, our distributor, they're doing an amazing job with the public relations and getting us out there again, you know? We're being featured in all kinds of stuff. I couldn't be happier with them. The movie has had quite a life before it's even getting out there on VOD and DVD. What has been the reaction at these uh, these showings that you've had so far? Well, it's, it's been amazing. It's been huge. I mean, well, we like to say we premiered at San Diego Comic-Con last year, and, and we did screen it then. But uh, the week before, uh, we had a screening at the Screen Actors Guild Foundation, and since then, I've been, we showed it at the, uh, the Arrow with the cast and crew. Uh, I've screened it at, uh, gosh, probably half a dozen festivals, uh, conventions. And it's so kind of, what's the word? It's so validating, you know, because it's been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, there hasn't been uh, a screening or a moment or a comment that's been like, you know, this movie blows or this movie sucks or it wasn't worth it. Everybody seems to like it. And it is so gratifying. Well, it's got to be gratifying for you. And then it also has to be gratifying for the original players, the folks that put so much work into this the first time around. Yeah, that's kind of our hope. I mean, this isn't this is like it's a love letter. You know, it's we're not we're not out to make anybody look bad. Uh, we're not out to expose, you know, some ugliness that was going on. Although, you know, there was a little bit of ugliness, but it, it kind of, you know, it's it's that corporate greed type of ugliness. It's not it's nobody's evil, but you know the, the cast and the people that we interviewed were assured and reassured by the fact that we like the movie. We want to make them look good, and they see it as an opportunity to get their names out there again. You know, it's another opportunity for them, and and, and uh, the only opportunity with with this movie really, where they could get a, a boost from this. Uh, Mark and I decided early on that um, we were going to include them, you know, in the profit sharing. We want them. To, you know, they never saw, uh, I mean, they all got paid for it, uh, but they never saw residuals. They never saw what every single other actor sees when they make a movie. Uh, and that is every time it's exploited, you know, they get a check and they never got those checks. I know that this is not your first film. You've made some shorts in the past and, but I'm curious, has this given you a taste? Are you thinking of another project now? Yeah. At one point we were actually, I was actually entertaining this. But I didn't want to get pigeonholed as the Corman Fantastic Four guy. I would love to write a screenplay about this entire project. I would love to go out and cast young versions of Alex Hyde White and Joseph Culp and Carl Cerfalio and Rebecca Staub and show a, you know, behind the scenes dramatization of what happened back then. But, you know, a narrative account of it. How great would that be? How fun would that be? Realistically, that's you know, not something I'm interested in. I do love this trend that we're seeing. John Shep's Superman Lives documentary, uh, the Kevin Smith one, Tim Burton one, 
the uh, Ryan Unicone, the kid out in Australia who's making the uh, documentary about uh, the Justice League Mortal, you know, movie that uh, George Miller's film that never got off the ground. The idea that there are these comic booky types of uh, films out there, uh, whether they're made or not made, have a story behind them. I like that trend. I'm not answering your question about kind of what's next because I don't have an answer. Um, this thing's taking. Oh, that's fine. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this thing's taking me close to you know four years all told to make. I need a rest for a while, but Mark and I are actively talking, you know, uh, about what our next project is going to be, but we haven't nailed it down. What's one of the most interesting things about what you guys have done versus what some of these other filmmakers have done? I mean, you kind of remind me of the, the documentary about the island of Dr. Moreau, where there is a finished product, but it just varies so much from what the original intention was versus yeah. other things that, that you mentioned that – there is no finished product. There's some behind-the-scenes stuff. There's some test footage. But with this, you have the full film, and it's yeah. just sitting there. Yeah, and It's just amazing that you're making a movie about this film OD that just nobody can really see in a very legal way. And again, none of the actors are getting residuals whenever you plunk down your $20 at a, at a bootleg convention. Right, right. Uh, you know, the whole, I mean, how amazing would it be, you know, if finally this movie gets released, you know, if we played some small role in, uh, in ultimately this, uh, uh, you know, the, the people who do have access to the movie right now decide to release it. Uh, that wasn't our intention. It's that we didn't make this so that that would happen. But if that were a byproduct of uh, us making it, gosh, what a home run that would be. So where's the best place for people to go to find out what's happening with the film, when it's available, where, what is happening with it? Yeah, we have a, you know, our website's uh, doomed the movie and uh, we've got a bunch of stuff there. Um, but it's not something that we actively update where you want to find that is over at our Facebook page, uh, doomed, doomed FF, but just search for doomed Corman and, uh, like us on our Facebook page where we update, uh, at least a few times a week. And, uh, as we get closer to the release date, We'll be posting, you know, more and more. So uh, the more likes uh, and followers we get on that Twitter or a Doomed FF, um, and we do that as regularly as we can too. I know it's coming out on VOD on October 11th, and it's coming out on DVD on the 20th of December. So perfect for a Christmas gift. But have you already kind of locked in all the things that are going to be? Are there extras on the DVD version? Yeah, we've got quite a bit of extras um, on the DVD. Uh, more uh, on the Blu-ray. Just uh, you just uh, capacity-wise, you've got a lot more you know space to fill up. But we've got yeah, a boatload of extras. We've got kind of an expurgated uh, interviews with. Um, with Roger Corman, we have the full interview. Uh, we have uh, Sean Howe's full interview, uh, which is so great. Sean was the, the writer of uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, uh, which uh, uh, talks about in length um, the history of Marvel. And uh, he was just such a valuable resource. And we've got kind of fun, goofy stuff from the set when we were doing these interviews. We revisit some uh, film locations and one of the extras. We've got the entire uh, cast and crew panel um, that was taped at the Arrow Theater uh, last year. So you've got everybody on stage. Uh, it's like a 20-minute interview uh, on the Blu-ray, which is awesome. Uh, there's a director interview with me that was done uh, at a local TV station here. Uh, so, yeah, lots and lots and lots of extras. Fantastic. Marty Langford, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this.
Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, with that uh, invisible bitch and uh, flame on and shit. Thing. Motherfucker. Looks just like the thing. How did you get into the business of being a stunt person? I was going to college and, and uh, I was an athlete on the wrestling team. And um, one of the uh, one of my teammates, all he could talk about was was stunts and movies and um, uh, uh, Yakima Canut and uh, you know motorcycles. And, and I went, oh, I, I'd love to learn how to ride a motorcycle. So we became fast friends, and uh, he taught me how to ride a motorcycle. And between practices of uh, at, at wrestling on the mat, we would you know throw punches and roll around and stuff and have some fun i'll be damned a year later he called me and said uh that he had an audition at uh, knott's berry farm which is a which is a, a an amusement park here in southern california and that they were looking to uh, do a stunt show uh and and uh they were looking for a uh, they were looking for a character they're looking for a big guy who could um, move and maybe be funny on stage and that's kind of right up my alley I, mean, I think I was digging ditches for a plumber or something that summer. And I, I thought anything's better than this. Um, so uh, I went and auditioned. I did a little uh, auditioning for them, and, and uh, they liked what they saw and uh, asked me if I wanted to work there for the summer. I thought it would be okay because you know I was going to start school again in September. But uh, you know I got up on stage finally and had a cowboy hat and and a gun and. People were applauding and laughing, and there were girls in the audience. And I was 20 years old, and I never went back to school. I just, <laughs> I just continued on, and um, so I started doing live shows at uh, at an amusement park. Is is the way I got going. I went from I went from Knott's Berry Farm to uh, Universal Studios uh, here in Hollywood, and and uh, did their their Western stunt show up there for a, a few years, and and. Uh, Started to learn my trade and uh, started knocking on doors, and that was you know a long time ago. So um, that's how I got going. I've talked a lot to actors, but I've never really. I, I can think of one stunt person that I've talked to in the five plus years I've been doing this show, and I'm always curious: how do you learn? To become a stunt person, how do you learn to take those falls, take those blows to the head, all those kind of things that you have to do as a stunt person? Uh, you know what? Good question. Uh, and it's and it's evolved over the decades. Uh, you know, since the industry started, uh, in the beginning, it, you know, it was it was all about westerns, and so um, studios would go after cowboys and wranglers and put them in a position of falling off horses, and and you know, uh, uh, and I think the the idea of oh these guys can hit the ground and get up again was you know born back in the in the twenties. And since then, it's been a very give and take industry. I will, I will help you. I will give you my knowledge if you give me yours. If you're a boxer and I'm a, a wrestler, let's, let's go work on moves and I'll show you what I know. You show me what you know. There's places, uh, nowadays that have, you know, full on gyms that you learn how to do high falls and ratchets and air rams. And, um, you know, you, you work with other stunt people who are, are willing to give them their time and their expertise. And, and you also, as a stunt person, I think you bring in to the industry your talents, whatever they are. And, and it's so wide right now. I mean, there's, you know, parkour is a big, is, is, is a hot topic at this point. So there's a lot of people who do parkour that are being hired to do stunts uh, and they come from there. But, but there's motocross riders and race car drivers and, 
and gymnasts and um, professional athletes, uh, surfers, rock climbers, um, people who have that uh, hand-eye coordination and the ability to want to um, uh, overcome obstacles and do it in a uh, do it in a in a, um, a setting that's uh, as safe as possible would still be challenging. Um, and so I think. I think, uh, you know, learning to be a stunt person is also learning about how film is made, you know, how TV shows are, are produced and what's expected of you. And um, it's, it's, a, it's quite an education as you go along. And, and I think the longer you stay with it, the more you learn. Well, it's got to be interesting, too, because you have to know the placement of the camera and what you can do in order to kind of cheat so that you're not, you know, killing yourself every time you, you do one of these stunts. It's learning the magic uh, of, you know, what enables you to get up and do a certain gag 15 or 20 times. Um, it's also uh, uh, the, the stunt coordinators, the responsibility to, to help the stunt people set that gag up and so the cameras can catch it. And it's, it's all a big, um, it's all a big concert. Everybody plays together. And, and uh, uh, I think that, as far as stunt people go, I think the, pe- the stunt people who who make a long career, uh, you know, out of this industry are the ones that that keep their their eyes and ears open and their mouth not so much. Um, so you know, so so you learn, you learn as you go. So so when you have that opportunity to, you know, uh, put out some of your expertise, it is exactly that and not a bunch of BS. Well, how did you go from doing those stunt shows at Universal to actually being in front of the camera as a stuntman? While I was doing the live shows at, at Knott's and Universal, I would go out and, you know, on, on my days off, I would I would meet up with other stunt people. I would train and learn how to ride motocross and, and do high falls and fire and lay down motorcycles. And so I felt rounded enough to go pitch myself to stunt coordinators in between shows at Universal uh, back in those days, late seventies to the early eighties, I get done with the live show and I change my clothes and I walk down the back of the hill and go shake hands and um, meet stunt coordinators and pass out my black and white eight by ten and try to sell my wares, which you know is myself, and and I'd also submit uh, through uh, the Variety and and Drama Log, which were uh, uh, industry magazines back then who had that had casting calls on uh the first job i got was on, on a movie uh through one of those uh, uh submissions and it was called uh, do it in the dirt and it was uh starring frank sinatra jr and darby hinton and darby was played daniel boone's son back in the was it, 60s i think on the tv show the ad said they were looking for uh big guys who looked like bikers who could ride motorcycles and do fights. I, I was kind of right up my alley. That was the first movie I did, 1978. And, um, you know, you meet people, uh, people that like you, they like your ability, they like, they like you on set. You add, as opposed to distract from the process, and you, and you start growing relationships. And, and that's what happened to me. You talked about the value of a stunt person learning when to kind of shut their mouths. When was the first time that you got to open yours on camera? When was that first kind of going from pure stuntman to stuntman actor? That happened almost immediately with me. Uh, when I, when I was at knots, I was on stage and I was on stage every day and I was uh, doing 
a live show, like we did street gun fights every day, but it was always in character and there's always dialogue. And when I went to Universal, again, we did a full on show three, five, seven times a day. So, so my ability to, um, let myself be open to uh, character, uh, it came pretty easy to me. And, and also I was, I mean, I was still 20 years old when I went to my first acting class because I thought, you know, if I want to pursue this, you know, I mean, I love the action part of it. I love the physical part of it because it was right up my alley as far as, as stunts go. But I also looked around and, and saw that the majority of actors were five, nine and 170 pounds. And that just <laughs> kind of doesn't fit for me to double anyone. I thought that, uh, you know, if I can become somebody who does dialogue and can do stunts, I'll, I'll be, you know, that guy. When people go, go to the movies, they go, oh, there's that guy. And, um, you know, second or third bad guy. And, and it, and it's always worked for me. So, so when I started in the industry, my first TV job on BJ and the bear, uh, was, uh, an acting stunt role. It, uh, you know, involved dialogue and action and interaction with the uh, principals. And I was always very comfortable with it. And, and I studied uh, for, for a long, long time. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so 1970, I think it was 1978 when I did BJ as well. And I became known as, as one of those stuntmen who can actually do dialogue and, and, you know, carry a character. And that's also, you know, giving me the opportunity to do some really wonderful straight acting roles as well. So I, it's a pretty good industry for me. Yeah, I was curious, what is that first pure acting role that you did? Because looking at your CV, it's like henchman number two, you know, bad guy number one, this kind of right. stuff. So I'm sure you're taking punches or at least throwing punches in those kind of roles. Yeah, most most definitely those are those are stunt roles, uh, you know, with with dialogue. That's a that's a hell of a question you just asked me because that's you know it's got to be forty years ago. Let's come back to that. I know, like on Golden Girls, your stunt work was pretty minimal, but you did have to you know land from kind of being dropped and everything. So, right. but then you got some really good dialogue after that. So, it, it must have been again very early in your career. It was more of a character, and I had a little bit of dialogue, more about character and timing. And um, the the gag was is, is uh, I'm playing a parachutist who's looking for the orange bowl, and I end up in the in the lady's backyard, and uh, I'm also dressed in a big black crow suit. And so they didn't want the audience to <laughs> to know that I was up there, so they got me all harnessed up and hoisted me up to the ceiling, and I was up there for like an hour and a half. Jeez. <laughs> Before before they finally let me come down, but I had such a great time with that. You know, it, it was uh, it, it was a, you know a, a great show to work on, and uh, you know I get uh, those little nuggets every once in a while that really stand out. Golden Girls was one of those. Now I know in something. Sorry to to keep harping on the the Golden no. Girls, but that was one of the first things I remember you from. But you're not really necessarily visible in that. And I'm I'm curious because when it comes to the Fantastic Four, when you were the thing, again, you're not necessarily visible. How often in those early days were you kind of obviously as a stunt person, you're you're hiding your face a lot of times. But as an actor, how often were you you know in a suit or you know made up uh, and so that you were almost completely unrecognizable from more times i like to think to be unrecognizable on camera means that and you do your job and, and everybody's happy with it that means that you get a great opportunity to come back especially on tv shows uh, on television usually if 
if you're playing a part and you're prominent, you're, you do one episode, you're usually done for the season. You're that stunt guy in the back that, um, oh, here, here's an example for you. When I, I used to go down to Texas and work for, uh, uh, for Walker, Texas Ranger, and um, they'd bring me on and give me a, a role for a, an episode, and, they, and I would be, you know, whatever that character is, and it would be my face all over the place. And then they'd ask me to stay and, you know, throw on a mustache and a wig or a hat and coat and and be a bad guy in the next one because they could hide me a little bit and Chuck liked to, to fight with me. That was very special because usually once you've done a role on a TV show, you're you're done. Uh, so, so to be able to hide yourself is, is actually a big benefit. Um, one of my problems is that I stand out. Here I am. I'm looking at my uh, IMDb on um, my actors list, and and the majority of these are um, are one-offs, you know, as far as TV goes. Um, though things like you know in the old days, uh, you know, Falcon Crest and Knight Rider, and you know all those things, they were just kind of pushing us through. You know, like I, I did several of, of those. I kind of stand out. I'm, again, I'm sitting there looking through it. I, I do stand out. Um, and uh, the thing about the Fantastic Four was I was in the suit. Uh, every time I was on screen, I'm in the suit. And I had a hell of a time doing it, too. It was it was a wonderful challenge. Had you ever done anything like that where you had to put on a suit like that or that much uh, makeup before you went on screen? And obviously, I know that wasn't makeup. I know that was a suit. But had right. you ever had to prepare that much as far as being made up or, or costumed like that? I had done, and I, I think it was before this, and I can't remember now or, or right around it, but I, I've done, um, oh, you know, Star Trek's and Babylon 5's where you spend a couple hours in makeup and doing appliances and, and, and stuff like that, but I had never worn a, a full-on monster suit before, and uh, the, the whole process is extremely interesting. Um uh, uh, from from the time they cast me as uh, the thing to the time they made the cast for me, um, you know, was uh, I, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, it gets really funny, I, I, and I never knew this would come back, but I had uh, a friend of mine uh, video the process of the making of the thing, and um, I've actually got on on uh, on a DVD here from the time they, they put me in a cast uh, on all the steps that it, take, that it took to build that suit to uh, to the finished product. Uh, very interesting. I'd been around suits. Uh, I had worked on um, the original TV series, The Flash. Uh, and the, the guys who run The Flash outfit had a cool suit on. They have a, like a cooling system that ran through their suit and they carried this little canister with them. And when it got too hot, they'd turn it on and it would blow cool cold water through the suit and so <laughs> not, not really understanding how low budget low budget was on fantastic four and roger corman when i went to get fitted for the suit and they were making it for me i said to them and we're going to put a cool suit in this right and we all had a really big laugh <laughs> and uh and they, they kept on making the suit the suit was uh, as far as the character goes it's the best suit that's ever been made for the character <laughs> it was so true to the character, to the thing. It was really, really well done. It was a good two, two and a half inches thick of foam rubber uh, that they sculpted uh, for me. And so the only thing I could have on underneath it was actually a, a I wore a, a big spandex suit, and uh, so I could slip in and out of it a, a little easier. 
the boots, the booties attached, the feet attached, and the and the uh, the gloves for the hands attached. And then they'd um, snap me up the back and Velcro me and put the head on. I had two heads. Put the head on and snap me in. Really, the only air I could get was through the mouth hole. <laughs> so it was quite a um, quite an undertaking. And 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 I'm 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 a little claustrophobic, so I really had to get get it right in my head what was going on with that. So one of the little things that I needed to overcome, but um, they were so really good with me as far as letting me have a little bit of time now and again to to take this thing off and and breathe, you know, be able to do that. And the two heads that I had, they made one that was all foam rubber that I used for the fight scenes and uh, going through the walls and stuff like that. And then they made one that was uh, a remote control head uh, underneath uh, the, uh, the mask and uh, the special effects guys, the guys who built the suit, would would um, run the remote control when the the eyebrows, the cheeks, and the mouth moved on those. So um, that was a, a that was an experience as well. Yeah, I was curious how close are those guys when they're manipulating the 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 suit? Are they you know ten feet away, twenty feet away, or are they right right on your tail, you know, making your face move? They would stand next to camera. And I would do the dialogue as it was written, and they would they would move the mouth and the eyes and make the emotion happen as far as the face goes, and then um, and then in post, uh, uh, Michael Bailey Smith uh, voiced over uh, for the thing, and he's the one that played Ben Grimm. It's so strange because he's a good actor, he's a big guy. You're a good actor, you're a big guy. Was there any sort of discussion at any point? Like, why isn't he in the suit or why am I not in the suit for part of this movie? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, um, Michael's a, a really fine actor and, 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 and what a great guy. And we've become fast friends over the years. Uh, here's what happened is that is that uh, optic nerve, optic eye, optic nerve. I always get that wrong. The guys who built the suit for me, they got the order for the suit before Michael was hired. So the, they built the suit to what you know Jack Kirby and Stan Lee had had uh, the, the, the dimensions for the thing where he's about he's six feet tall with blue eyes and weighs about 500 pounds of lock. And so they started to produce the suit for that size. Michael is I think he's better than six foot four. And by the time Michael took, got on on board, the suit was being built. Anatomically to, to correct to the to the comic book was the size that they made my suit. Michael would have been, you know, too tall for the character, not right, not quite right for what the character actually called for. Was there any animosity between you guys when it came to that kind of stuff? Because you could have done that Ben Grimm role just as easily. Yeah, that's what I told. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you know what? Um, no, uh, Michael was a team player, and he got it. He understood it. You know, and he he was an athlete. He, he played uh, pro football actually for a short time from Dallas Cowboys, and and so his his attitude about what it would take to make this thing work was really really good. And uh, and like I said, we became really good friends. And and uh, I probably worked with Michael four or five times after that. I was actually a stunt coordinator on one of the shows that he was that he was working and we still stay in touch today. So um animosity, no, there was actually a, a, a really nice cohesiveness with uh with the uh, with the crew, with the cast. I think everybody kind of got who they were and what they needed to do. And Michael especially, I mean he could have pulled it off. It just um 
just timing and body type, I think, was was uh, was the, the difference. How long did it take you to get into the suit every day? They actually had to corner me and trap me and put me in it. <laughs> After about the third day, I was like, what the hell? I guess you guys are killing me here. I would you know, slip on my leotard, so to speak, and, and jump in the suit. So it was, it was a minimal, you know, 10 to 12 minutes to get into the suit. It was made for me, so I, I just stepped in. Um, you know, it's also, we were, we were working at Corman's uh, Studios in, in Venice, California, which were... Uh, not really uh, modern at all. <laughs> they were they were very very old, and and uh, there was you know the air conditioning didn't really work, and there was it, it was it was a tough place to be overall, and, and we all made the best of it. But um, you know the suit at one point was a minor detail. It was just part of my working outfit. God, you must have sweated so much. Oh, seven or eight pounds a day. They'd have to, um, when I took the boots off, we'd have to take the boots off and pour them out. It was pretty hot. It was pretty hot in there. And, you know, when you're on a set, you know, there's a bunch of lights in a small room and, and 50 people. It was something to overcome. But, but you know what? I, we were all having, I wouldn't say a, I, I'd say a great time, but, but when, you, when you love the work you do, you, you do your work the best you can. It, it was that that kept us going, that and, and, and Ole, the producer, was uh, an amazing gentleman to work with. You've done stunts for, what, 150 movies? You've acted in well over 100 films. When something like The Fantastic Four doesn't come out, do you mourn for it that much, or are you already on to the next gig or two or three? In this, I don't know how to make it sound right, but not really being included with the cast. Uh, you know, back then it was it was a fantastic four, and I was the stunt guy. Uh, you know, when 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 some of them went on to try to get the movie uh, uh, released, they went to they, they spent their own money and went to Comic Con and got a table and you know did radio interviews and went back to New York and. And, and so I wasn't really included in that. And uh, I was on to the next, you know, I, I probably worked the week after this, you know, when I wrapped on this thing. As far as, as far as the movie goes, yeah, it bums me that it never came out. And it didn't have any effect on my career where it may have had some effect on some of the other actors that were on, on screen because it, it could have been a really great launching pad for some of those people. And, and well, it should have been had the powers that be, you know, made that happen because actors on camera are a little bit different than, than the guy in the suit. Now, you know, 20 some years later, you know, I've been asked to, to join them for uh, 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 screenings and, and um, you know, with Doomed coming up, uh, uh, and we've been to, to a lot of things together. It's kind of a bummer now because because I'm sure that how many do they make actors, three or four? 20 years from now, that cast isn't going to sit on the stage and go, wow, we had a great time making this movie. These people that did Corman's Fantastic Four are um, really good people. It's really good values. And it's nice to have that come back around after a couple of decades. Well, the thing that is so remarkable to me when I'm watching the documentary is just that camaraderie does come through. And especially when it comes to Ole, just everybody has nothing but great things to say about the guy. It just seems like he really rallied the troops when it came to this film. Yeah. You know what? He's a, an actor's director. He, he 
let you work and then tweaks as opposed to jamming anything down your throat. Plus, his attitude was, uh, was so very good with us, and, and he got that we were working in conditions that were far from great studio conditions. And, you know, he knew what was going on as far as, as what we needed and what he needed and, you know, the frustration of time and money uh, on a smaller project like that. Uh, I can't say enough about Ole. I, I, if for no one else, <clears throat> I wish the film would have gone for him because he deserves to be doing big things. So what do you think when you get the call a few years ago, hey, we're going to do this documentary about the Fantastic Four, will you be a part of it? Uh, I, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was a, a, a fun call. In fact, I had to say, <laughs> you know, you're not talking to Michael Bailey Smith. This is the guy that was, <laughs> I'm the guy that was in the suit. And they were, and they were like, yeah, you know, we, we'd like for you to, to, to join us with this. And, and I thought, um, and, and why not? You know, I, I liked working on the movie and, and, um, you know, we, the cast got along well and it was a chance for me to, see and be around Ole and, and Michael and Rebecca again. And I, you know, it's, it's fun. And, and I think that, um, you know, at this point in my, in my career, you know, which is, you know, 40 some years old, uh, I'm having, um, I'm having a little bit more fun now than I used to. And this was, this was fun. Uh, and, and maybe I get to shine a little light onto, you know, some movie history and, um, you know, and it was a movie that that my kids could see because the majority of stuff that I do, like getting my eye poked out and crap like that, it's it's you know, it's tough when when they're young, when they're younger to to say, hey, you want to go see Dad on the screen, but you can't watch this, you know. Um, so so it was you know, it's it's all a good time now, and and uh, and and you always get, I always seem to get you know little bonuses from things like this, like. Uh, Mark Sykes and Marty Langford are wonderful people, really great guys, and have uh, a wonderful heart and vision for, for what they're doing here with Doom. So just like this, you know, I mean, in the movie industry and, and stunts especially, we don't really have a history, a written history, because we, are, we were invisible for so long. Uh, I get the opportunity to change that a little bit and, you know, bring to light who we are, what we do. And uh, and the contributions that, that you know stunt people give to um, to cinema. Well, you also kind of added to that with your book with Star Stunts and Stories. What made you decide to sit down and write a memoir? Back in and I think it was two thousand uh, nineteen ninety nine, and uh, I'll kind of mix this up now. I was uh, I was home recuperating from uh, uh, surgery, and um, I was home for quite a while. And uh, some of my friends would come by, and you know. We'd, visit and talk and ultimately tell stories. And um, my wife would say to me, uh, hey, you know, you should write these down. And I'm just like, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't write, you know, so I'll just talk. I'll just be us a little bit. And um, and she kept saying, you know, this is this stuff is invaluable. It's it's things that, that those on the outside don't hear, don't know, and, and don't have a look into. And I said, well, okay, I'll just write some stuff down. And... Um, so I did that for a while. So I, and then, uh, and then lo and behold, I was down again <laughs> some years later and started, uh, you know, just kind of writing some thoughts down. And then a couple of years ago, I, I, uh, uh Terry and I had a talk about it and she said, you know, let's get serious. You got great stories here. So let's, let's write a book. That scared the hell out of me. And I said, Oh my God, I don't know how to write a book. Um, my wife, the writer, 
that said to me, you write just like you talk and tell the stories just like you, you would tell them to your friend across the table. You write like that, she goes, and I'll put the periods where they belong. And so I did. The more I wrote, the more flowed out of me, the more memory came back, you know, and, I, and I'd find, you know, I, I, I got a box of photos and I go through the photos and I go, oh my gosh, that just drives my memory to, you know, what happened there and what happened here. And I also wanted to put a little bit of the history of the industry in there and the things that some stuff people go through and, and how, what it feels like to be in those situations and you know, some of the equipment that we use and, and um, I'm not a big reader, so I wrote it like I like to read. I like to read chapters that aren't very long, and I like to finish one before I start the other. It's an easy read that way, and, and I've had really wonderful response to it from Amazon and, and uh, you know, people even outside the industry, which which is exactly what I was hoping for. You have gotten to, in films anyway, beat up Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. Who are some of your favorite people who you've gotten to beat the snot out of? <laughs> well, you know, I usually don't win fights. So, you know, that's very memorable to be able to, you know, throw those names out. Working with, with, with Tom Cruise was, uh, was a thrill. Probably the hardest working actor I've ever had the pleasure of, of being around. Uh, the fight scene we did in Far and Away, we rehearsed it for three and a half weeks before we even um, started to shoot our portion of the fight. And then uh, Ronnie Howard took almost three days to shoot the, that fight that we did. You know, we worked on it every day. Tom was wonderful to work with. And on that, and then, then you cut to, you know, X amount of years later, and I'm doing um, MI3. There he is on the on the deck of, uh, of the uh, um, bridge that we're, we're driving on. And, I waved to him. He came over and, you know, really nice greeting and a nice hug. And we were talking and I said, you know, Tom, I said that, uh, that fight in far and away, I said, that's, uh, that's the only fight, fight that I've ever won in, in 30 years. And he goes, really? It's the only one I've ever lost. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of nice. You know, I, I, uh, I, I, again, I, I mostly, I mostly lose fights, but I, I, I lost two, you know, years to, uh, uh, Steven Seagal and, and Clark Dam and you know, Chuck Norris always wins. Um, uh, and Chuck, there's another wonderful human being to work with. Just a really, really good guy who, um, you know, actually loves stuntmen. And, uh, and so that's, it was always a pleasure to, to work with him. I, uh, you know, uh, other actors, oh, Woody Harrelson, uh, beat the crap out of me, uh, in Out of the Furnace a couple of years ago, uh, opening scene to that movie in the, uh, movie, what do you call them? Driving theaters don't have this anymore. So, um, you know, so, uh, Woody got me and, um, uh, you know, I got blown up in the book of Eli, but I was doubling an, an actor there. So, you know, they got me over there too. And, and, uh, Dark Moon Rising, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, beats me and kills me and uh it's just yeah yeah all all those guys they've all had their hands on me well i think one of your most memorable turns other than being lose bodyguard and fight club which is one of my favorite films but of course it has to be casino what was that experience like for you working in casino and working with scorsese it was an incredibly wonderful experience and and um can I tell you exactly how I got this part? So I got a call from the stunt coordinator. The stunt coordinator, Doug Coleman, had um, 
convince casting that the guy on the table should be the stuntman because it was going to be a grueling situation. And they agreed and, and they um, called a few of us into uh, to the audition. You know, I don't know how people picture Hollywood auditions, but uh, I, I got called into the, the room and it's, you know, it's 10 by 12 and, and, and there's nothing in there but a camera and a chair. And there were two women, a casting woman and her assistant was running the camera. And she said to me, we want to know, Mr. Scorsese wants to know if, um, if you can play this role as somebody who is, who is really upset and really, really angry at someone. And, and we want to know how many different ways you can tell them to fuck off. They said, are you willing to do that? And I was just like, well, fuck yeah. <laughs> of course I can do that. Uh-huh. So, so the audition consisted of me, you know, they'd yell something at me and I would uh, yell right back at them and, and call them everything that I'd ever heard. And a few days later, I got a call from casting and said, you know, Mr. Scorsese, what's your performance? <laughs> so I, I got that role and, um, you know, they sent me the script and I read it and I was just like, well, I wonder how they're going to do this. They started with a, a cast of my head. They cast my head uh, in plaster for the, for the eyeball piece to pop out. Then I think about a week or so later, they they flew me out to Vegas, and we uh, we got into it. We do the opening scene one night. It's uh, myself and two of my henchmen come in and shoot up the bar and kill everybody that's there. And then uh, I think it was the following night or the night after, we got into them dragging me to the table and, and putting my head in the vice. Uh, when I went into the makeup room to get the prosthetic put on because they were, they were going to put the prosthetic on and they were going to take my head out. And then they were going to put the fake head in. The gentleman was building my head said, um, we dropped your head. (laughs) They had dropped the plaster head and then they tried to remold it. And and then the head doesn't look much like me. Um, so they decided to do, uh, the prosthetics and, and, uh, really interesting process. So that's me and the vice the whole time. And they put a, a prosthetic eyeball, um, on top of my left eye and blended all that in and put an eyebrow on it. And uh, they had two tubes that pushed up underneath the, uh, the prosthetic. One tube was an air tube that would make the eyeball open, uh, my eye eyelids uh, open and uh, the eyeball start to pop out. And then the second tube was, was the blood tube that would spurt the blood. And, and action. So the, you know, they, they dragged me and throw me on the table, put my head in the vice. We did that a few times. And then we got into the, then we got into the, you know, cranking scene with, with Pesci, you know, spitting in my face for, we did that for like, I was out there for nine hours. I was on the table for freaking ever. Pesci was wonderful. His, his energy never waned. That was helpful because it was an uncomfortable spot to be in, you know, if nothing else. Uh, Scorsese was just outside the set when I was on stage. He was just outside the set, you know, watching a monitor. And after each take, you would hear, blood, more fucking blood. I need more fucking blood. So, you know, he likes a lot of blood. And, um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the set was, the set was, uh, serious enough to work and, and fun enough to be on, uh, uh Scorsese and, and Pesci are friends. And so there was a little bit of ribbing going on back and forth with them, which kept, a very, very long night, kept it going, kept the energy up. We shot the eyeball coming out of, of the of the prosthetic and landed on my cheek and um the blood coming out and everything else. And and uh when they when they first put the movie together, uh, uh they got a uh 
an X rating. And uh, the MPAA told Scorsese that if he wanted a, um, an R rating, that they would have to take a couple things out. And one of those being uh, the, ob- the eyeball coming out of the socket, which is odd because, you know, so this is what, 20 some years ago. Today, it'd be like, oh, yeah, it was I. <laughs> you know, but it was different back then. So, um, so that's why in, in the movie, that's why the eyeball starts to come out uh, of the socket and then they cut away from it. I have a photo, uh, here with, the, uh, in, in my collection of, uh, of the eyeball sitting on my cheek, um, which is, you know, kind of odd. Uh, and I also have the prosthetic head that they, that they made and never used. I have that in the garage and my daughter made me put a, bag over it <laughs> okay because <laughs> it's kind of weird but i had you know what i had a wonderful time and again i i got to work with some great people and it's one of those roles that people mention just like you have you know that bat and fight club and and the thing that's you know, why you get a big uh, a big push a nice little gem for for people to go oh that was you yeah 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 you know very proud to have worked on a casino very proud to have worked with with the talent that was up there on screen uh, you know, Scorsese, Pesci, uh, De Niro. Uh, how do you go along with that? Um, and, and it's and it's nice to be included in that. And and um, all those little things like that make me feel my you know my my career's got some really great high points to it. Well, I know that you've kind of stretched out and uh, and have been a stunt coordinator for a lot of years, but it seems like recently you've made some more strides and and you're now associate producing and second unit directing. Can you tell me about some of those projects? I'm, I, I'm, I'm a stunt coordinator and I think being a stunt coordinator is a progression, you know, that you, that you come to. And, uh, I've been very fortunate to, to work on some really wonderful pictures. Um, uh, some of them smaller projects, uh, independence, um, where you get to have, um, maybe a bigger input than you would at a big studio picture or uh, uh, you know, less ego, more get it done stuff on the, on the smaller projects. I'm actually uh, coordinating right now on a, on a film uh, by a, a horror director, Tom Holland, uh, who did Friday the 13th and uh, Child's Play. It's a smaller unit, but we're having such a great time and, and uh, the ability to, the ability to contribute is giving me the confidence to, to know that, you know, I can produce that I can, that I can, um, put things together and, and, and make them happen. And, uh, you know, as, as far as producing goes, uh, I've got a couple of things in the hopper that, um, that keep moving forward. So some of my opinions are crossed on that. One of them is a comedy and I, I, I can't wait to have it done just so I can do a comedy. Sometimes being a heavy and being in big heavy movies, it's nice to be on a, on a movie where you laugh a lot. And um, so I'm I'm looking at that right now. The script's called uh, Sam's Story, and uh, we're real close to uh, to putting that together. And uh, and so I'm I'm excited about that. And I came back earlier this year. I spent a couple of months in uh, Sri Lanka, second unit directing on a on a film called Solar Eclipse, um, which stars uh, uh, Stephen Lang, uh, Avatar fan, and who is he's had the number one movie for a couple of weeks here called um, Don't Breathe. And so uh, I had a, a, a great experience there with the most wonderful actors who were kind and giving. And uh, the way the movie worked out is I, I probably I probably directed a third of the movie, actors and all, not just a second unit. So um, they trusted me with that. And, and uh, you know, confidence breeds confidence. And, and so um, I'm, I'm looking for another one. 
Where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all your projects that you're working on? A couple of different ways. They can they can go to uh, imdb.com, the Internet Movie Database, and um, they'll sometimes well, they'll, they'll be able to take a look at, at the, the shows that I've done stunts and shows that I've acted and uh, directed and and, uh, and the rest, and maybe see some of their favorites up there and you know be able to to go back to take a look at those. Um, uh, you can go to my uh, my website, carlcirofolio.com, and uh, take a look there. Uh, you can uh, see some of my clips on YouTube, and you can find my book at um, Amazon.com. It's called Star Stunts and Stories. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, come to the website, Star Stunts and Stories website, and, and find it there. That'll kind of keep you up to date and who I am and why I am and, and uh, you know, hopefully hopefully entertain you know, between the book and, and some of the stuff that I've done. Well, thank you so much, Carl. This was a real pleasure talking with you tonight. Mike, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, anything I can do to help you, just let me know. was the first time that you read the Fantastic Four? Were you a fan as a kid? Well, I, at first I was a Batman fan. Batman got me into his comic books. So obviously, you know, watching that TV show, I started getting into comics as soon as I discovered the Fantastic Four, which I don't remember exactly what my first issue was, but it was in the early 70s. I fell in love with that comic book because it was so different than other superhero comic books. I mean, the 70s version of Batman it was hit and miss the 60s and 70s. You know, there was the Neil Adams stuff later that was great. But Fantastic Four, I just fell in love with right away. And I was fortunate enough that there are books that I remember buying. One was The Origins of Marvel Comics, which was a paperback book by Stan Lee. And then he did The Son of Origins, which all it was was reproductions. It was, uh, you know, reprints of the first issues of key Marvel characters, including the Fantastic Four. And then they would do like issue one of the Fantastic Four. Then it was like, issue 58 or something. And so I remember buying the Fantastic Four and kind of reading the early, because the first Fantastic Four came out in 1961. Um, I remember reading everything in reprint. I would get those giant size. So giant size would be like an ish, a new story, and then it would be a reprint of an old one. And they kind of reprinted the run from one through a hundred. So I was able to read the first hundred issues of Fantastic Four, but the story... There are two key stories that made me fall in love with with the FF. The first one was the uh, Galactus story. It was the it was the very first time that I mean, uh, comic books, at least the Fantastic Four and Marvel comics at the time had a chronology. There definitely was a canon. Like if something happened in a previous comic, say they had fought Doctor Doom, they would reference 
the first time they met Dr. Doom. And for the first like 25 issues of the Fantastic Four, in almost every other issue, they would retell the origin. Like, remember when this happened? They didn't know at the time, at least, that someone had read a previous edition of Fantastic Four. So they would often go over old story material. But at the time, I think I was like, you know, single digit age, you know, seven, eight years old. Uh, my parents ended up getting divorced uh, and separated when I was nine years old. So I definitely, you know, the world of fiction was something that I could dive into to kind of just escape the, you know, whatever family drama and turmoil was happening. And I remember one story, another story of the Fantastic Four that really hit me. It was like maybe around issues 150. And it was a, another multi-part story in which the family unit, which was an attraction for me of the FF, because you've got Johnny and Ben, which are kind of brothers. You've got Sue and Reed, which are, you know, they're the, you know, the, the married couple. Then you've got baby Franklin, right, who pretty much never aged throughout the run. I mean, you know, he does later, but they always keep him at like three or four years old, you know, three, four, five years old. He doesn't, doesn't age too much, at least at the time. But like there was an issue where Sue had left Reed Richards for Namor the Submariner. She always had like this sort of romantic fling with him. And I remember she left him. And the weird thing was, this was the great thing about Marvel Comics, is Marvel Comics were set in the real world, right? The cities in Marvel Comics were real cities. The cities in DC Comics were fictional cities. Gotham and Metropolis. I mean, here, the Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four were in New York in the Baxter building. But the one thing that I vividly remember is Reed Richards had, like he hadn't shaved in days. So he had like stubble to sort of show the anguish of his, you know, girlfriend, his wife leaving him to go to Namor the Submariner. And I remember that comic really affecting me as a kid. Like she left him like this is scary. And I think that, uh, you know, my attraction to that story had something to do with my, you know, what was happening in my life as a, as a little kid. But um, I really the, the Fantastic Four always struck me because it was so different. They weren't like you know, solving crimes. They were a family and they were, it was a science fiction story. Everything was wild. I mean, I think the thing you could compare the Fantastic Four more to, Fantastic Four is less a superhero comic. It's more like Doctor Who than anything else. Those stories were like better than movies because special effects were really unsophisticated in the 70s. It wasn't until the original Star Wars in 1977 where special effects in movies, you saw what was possible. And George Lucas has def has stated uh, Marvel Comics as being an influence, and I believe, for one, Doctor Doom is Darth Vader. I mean, the character of Darth Vader is heavily influenced by Doctor Doom. You know, uh, scarred, encased in this metal suit, he has a green cape. Darth Vader has a black cape, uh, also encased. I mean, it's 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 very similar to Doctor. I mean, Doctor Doom is is uh, in a way the grandfather of of Darth Vader. I want to know how did you get involved with kind of covering the the movie in 1994? I was doing film threat at the time uh, through Larry Flint Publications, and I had become friends with uh, John Vulich and Evan Burrell, and they were a company. They they had a small special effects company, and I met them on the set of Night, the remake of Night of the Living Dead with Tony Todd and Patricia Tallman directed by Tom Savini. I spent, I spent like almost two weeks in Pittsburgh sleeping on the couch. And then they let me be a zombie in the movie. I was such a huge fan of George Romero. John Vulich and Evan Burrell, like, uh, they've since parted ways, but, 
Um, those guys worked on a lot of things together. They ended up working on like Babylon five. They did a lot of stuff. They even did in some photo shoots that I did for hustler magazine. Cause I was writing comedy and directing photo shoots for hustler. They, they did some of the special effects for, for that stuff. So, so they said, look, Hey, guess what? We're working on the fantastic four. And I said, Holy crap. You're working on fantastic four. I said, I want to, I want to go there. Now I had already kind of become friendly with the people at Corman Studios, you know, New World Pictures. And I had a bit part uh, where I had one line in a movie called Carnosaur. So I got to do that. And that's where they were filming, which wasn't actually far. It was on the West side, like in Venice, California. So as soon as the, the special effects guys, uh, you know, John Vulich, like told me like, dude, you gotta like, you're you're a fan of the Fantastic Four because there's so much downtime when you're sitting there working on a movie. All you would do is just talk about cool stuff you liked, you know? So they knew I liked the FF. I said, oh, I want to check it out. So they were building a full-size, you know, thing costume. So um, they showed me pictures. And the thing costume, if you watch that Corman Fantastic Four, the thing costume's actually pretty cool. The rest of the special effects in that movie are just so poorly done that it was just really disheartening i remember so we did a photo shoot for film threat because the movie magazines that i really loved at the time were like cinefantastique and and starlog in this and my goal was always to be as good as those publications so that when we covered a movie we covered every aspect of it you know we interviewed everybody involved we got storyboards and and um you know we we would cover it in a way that would be very complete I set up a photo shoot and I said, Hey, I want to, I want to put Fantastic Four on the cover. So we'd set up a photo shoot and all the characters in costume, Alex Hyde White, Rebecca dressed in her invisible girl costume, and they were just cheap spandex. And, and a lot of stuff in Hollywood, to be fair, a lot of stuff in Hollywood looks cheap in real life. I remember being on the set of Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness and there's a graveyard and it's styrofoam. Um, but through the use of sound and lighting, I mean, this stuff looks great. Well, the Fantastic Four costumes look terrible. So we, we had to light it correctly. But no matter how well it was lit, it could not cover up the fact that the actress who played Invisible Girl had visible camel toe, very visible to where we had to fix it, right? We just didn't want that, like, just for her own dignity, we had to fix it. And that was just something that like up close, those costumes look terrible. And they went with the white gloves, which I never liked. I always liked the sort of black or darker gloves that they had. If they wore them for too long, these gloves got dirty. And you could tell that just at every level of it, it was low budget. I think that the saving grace of that movie, when you look at it, is everyone who worked on it was a fan. No one worked on that movie for money. And by that, I mean, people might have been paid though not very much, but every single person from Alex Hyde White, you know, to the cast, to the, you know, the director, Oli Sasan, to the special effects guys, you know, John and, and Evan, like those guys put their heart and soul into it. And uh, whatever budget they had, they spent it all and then some. So when you look now at all of the different incarnations of the Fantastic Four, and there has not been a good one yet, the one that best captures the spirit of the comic and the essence of the characters from the comic is this Corman one. It really does. So that's, that's, so how I, how I got on the set was the, you know, the special effects guys and that got me the access, you know, and then it was just, I just want to hang out. I just want to hang out on the set. I didn't care about, I mean, great thing. That's such a great part of the job is being able to just 
go to sets and just hang out. On that one, I didn't get to actually be an extra because all the extras and everyone were costumed or were security guards. Um, I just happened to be around the set uh, for most of the shooting, which was not a long shoot, if I recall. It was only a couple of weeks, and they had to begin shooting before, you know, the, all this from the documentary, they had to start shooting before a certain date in order to hang on to the rights. So how long were you there? Um, it was probably on and off for about two weeks. So I wouldn't go there every day, but you know, I'd go in or, or they would like, you know, call me because there was no texting then. They would call me and they would say, Hey, you got to come down. We're going to do this one big scene. You're like, Ooh, the Dr. Doom stuff looks great, which it did. Actually, if you look at the the costume for Dr. Doom and the incarnation of Dr. Doom that appears in, in the Corman Fantastic Four is the best one. It's, it's really based off the comic book Dr. Doom. Whereas the other ones, they tried to alter it a little bit and give him superpowers and he's somehow connected the origin of Dr. Doom to the Fantastic Four, which I never liked that idea. That didn't make any sense. But yeah, I was like on and off for about two weeks and then us proceeding, you know, after I had gotten all of these photos, because I took my own photos while I was on the set. I took photos. I asked for storyboards. I got that stuff. I just went around. I talked to like the wardrobe guy. And I talked to, of course, special of my friends who worked in the special effects. I talked to, you know, as much of the cast that, you know, I could talk to. I got little short interviews with all of them because we set up the photo shoot and we were fully moving forward. We were going to be, I just wanted to beat everybody to the punch. And I remember when the issue of the magazine finally came out, Tony Timpone from Fangoria called me because film thread had been around, but never really been a threat to, you know, genre magazines. And Tony Timpone, he was doing, you know, he worked for Starlog and Fangoria called me up and he was like, wow, you really, uh, you really scooped us on that uh, fantastic four thing there. Cause that's normally the kind of thing that they would cover. And the fact that we did it and we did such a thorough job, I think kind of scared him for a second. But um, what ended up happening was that issue of the magazine came out. And I remember my question to them always was, so when's the movie coming out? When are we going to see the Fantastic Four? Like, you know, even the actors, the actors, I remember asking me, like, do you know when the movie's coming out? Do you know what's going on? But we had done so. So I think the shooting was like in uh, December slash January of that year. So it was like late December 93, like early 94 is when they were shooting because they had to start shooting before the end of the year. And then it was around June of 94 or so, June or July, that that issue of Film Threat Magazine hit. What we done is we actually took that issue, about 2,000 copies of it, to San Diego Comic-Con, where we then arranged, we just had a small booth for Film Threat. I mean, it wasn't huge. It was like a 16-footer where we had like, you know, uh, copies of the magazine for sale. And then we had, you know, uh, random t-shirts and bumper stickers and whatever little stuff, uh, that we had, that we were selling. We had the cast of the Fantastic Four and we, and I remember we rigged up a TV set, a little TV monitor with a VHS. And we had on a two hour VHS loop, the trailer for the Fantastic Four movie, which used music from Battle Beyond the Stars. And I swear I can quote the entire trailer for you.
the diamond is not for sale at any price. Oh, my God. I joke with David E. Williams, who was one of the editors of Film Threat and, and then Film Threat Video Guide at the time. Like, I could just sit here and quote a line from the trailer, and he'll, he'll groan and look at me like, ah, oh. because we sat at that booth. And for three, four days that we were at the booth at San Diego Comic-Con, that trailer played on a loop. Now, it stopped dead people walking by, right? Because this is before the internet. This, this trailer did not play in theaters, right? Like, this trailer was on a loop on probably a 19-inch TV on a loop at the Film Threat booth at San Diego Comic-Con, where there wasn't even a panel for the, for the movie. So when the cast, I believe it was a Saturday that the cast of the Fantastic Four would be there signing issues. So people bought their issues. People who had already bought the magazine, because by then it had been on newsstands for a little bit, went and just bought another copy so they could get it signed by the cast. And I remember the line was crazy. I remember the, the fire marshal and people were pissed off at our booth. We constantly had to do line management. Well, because of that, you can't do signings. You have to do signings a very specific way where they'll only let a certain number of people line up and then they cut off the line. So since then, uh, new rules have been created about how you can do signings on the floor of Comic-Con, and it's very regulated. At that time, um, nothing like that had ever occurred, so us doing it, that that, insti- that instated new rules uh, in future San Diego Comic-Cons. But I remember the cast being so sincere as they were signing every issue because the one question that I would hear – it would recur for every person that walked up to the booth. They would say, is it going to be any good? Because you know at the time, 94, right, how much comic book fans had been burned by seeing their favorite characters suck in a movie. That was actually sort of the accepted thing, right? Like most comic book movies are hit and miss. They kind of suck uh, for the most part. I mean the highlights were the first two Superman movies – um, and the, the Michael Keaton Batman movie, I like the Joker in that movie, but I still think it's a very flawed film. Um, and I only like it because Batman's in the movie and, and Michael Keaton's actually a pretty good Batman, but I think he's a terrible Bruce Wayne. I think, uh, Christian Bale's a much better Bruce Wayne. That, that was weird, the fallout from all of that. And then, and then after just even, even after San Diego Comic Con, I remember that fall, like asking my contact, over at uh, Roger Corman's company, like, what's going on? Is this movie ever going to come out? And they just never had a straight answer. You know, it was never, um, they never really copped to it, which of course leads to the documentary of like, well, what, what was really the story behind it? I think the only, the only people that are know that know, I mean, it was, it was obviously made to fulfill a legal obligation. It was, it was so that they could hold on to the rights to make another Fantastic Four movie at some point in the future. It's funny how things just kind of come around. I mean, because that was kind of the story with that uh, Amazing Spider-Man movie where it was like, oh, yeah, Sony's doing this just to hold on to the rights for Spider-Man. Oh, my God. And that was those two movies were terrible. I just did not like that interpretation of Peter Parker. Peter Parker was always awkward, an outcast, a nerd that contributed to his character. That's why he could, you know, as Spider-Man kind of have the id unleashed and he could be a smart ass. Whereas if he was a smart ass as a kid, you know, he'd get his butt kicked. So Peter Parker being sort of this cool guy, like that never worked. Um, I think Tobey Maguire was, did a, did a decent job of it, but I love the new Spider-Man, um, as, as seen in the, the Marvel, the Marvel movies. I think, I think they've done a great job with the character. I can't wait to see Spider-Man Homecoming. 
So when did you finally get to see the Fantastic Four film in its entirety? It was years that like this thing was just shelved. It wasn't until maybe like a San Diego Comic-Con that I remember seeing a bootleg tape of it somewhere and just having to buy it, you know, like everybody else. And then later I bought it in DVD form. But but that was one of the key bootlegs to get, which I'm sure was leaked by the people who worked on the film because they had to be upset having that movie shelved, right? Like, like I mean, to put all that work, effort, love, blood, sweat, tears into a thing and then no one can see it is disheartening. Uh, but yeah, no, it was years later that finally it's like, oh my gosh, I get to see it. And I remember just like my heart sank at just how bad it was, you know, like, oh, this is just the worst. And it, there was a sort of weird thing too also with like this May-December romance of, which is actually right out of the comics, right? Like, Reed Richards is an older dude and he falls for a younger, hot, blonde chick, you know, like they, they stayed true to that. But um, it really was the special effects were just kind of piss poor and they really don't even I mean, Johnny doesn't even flame on until the very end of the movie in a piece of animation that's just pretty weak, you know, just like looking at it and just going, gosh, well, you know, it was and it was like the thing is, it wasn't such a big disappointment because. My expectations were so low anyways, having been on the set. My expectations were like, all right, well, let's see. But uh, And I read a copy of the script, so I knew that they weren't going to be the Fantastic Four for very much of the film. In terms of, like, uh, you know, they're using their special abilities. Finally seeing it was was disheartening. It definitely was crushing. But also it was because so many things were bad at that time that it was just like, oh, whatever. Maybe they'll do it again someday. And and now we've seen three incarnations, if you include the Corman unreleased version. I think that Marvel should allow it to be released just from a historical perspective, like a good copy of it. And then maybe with some commentary by, you know, I don't know, someone to discuss it, you know, just talk about like uh, this unreleased thing. It, it, it it's It's sad that it has to exist in that format, but... I feel like they just haven't gotten the Fantastic Four right. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I think that the, the, the heyday of the Fantastic Four was the, those early 60s. You know, those first 100-plus issues were uh, in, spot on, you know. And then it had some highlights here and there. But when they reinvented it, I did not like that with their, with their origin being in the negative zone and this. It didn't make any sense, right? So, And Peyton Reed, I don't know if you know this, but Peyton Reed, who I met at Comic-Con, um, who was a film threat reader and he, I, he came to the film threat booth and was hanging out. We started talking about movies and this is way before Ant-Man. This is before a lot of stuff. He was telling me that he pitched a version to Marvel of doing the Fantastic Four as a period movie that would be set in the sixties as like this, you know, science fiction family, you know, like, uh, it would have been set during that sort of idyllic Camelot era, the pre JFK assassination with like old 60s, but they were like, wait, you want to make a superhero movie with all these special effects and it's a period film? And then of course later, you know, they ended up doing Captain America, which is a period, period movie. I don't know. I thought that was an interesting take that Peyton Reed had, but I think that the cool thing, and this is why I think comic book movies have turned out so well today is I think that the, the people that are now in the executive positions actually understand comics and they understand comics audiences. Look, if Deadpool has a red suit and it looks like a certain way, make it look like it was in the comics. 
you can make it practical like they did with Captain America's suit. It's, it's still Captain America's costume, essentially, but it's made to live practically in the real world. And some of those suits do not translate. You know, Wolverine just doesn't – I don't know how there's any way you could make that work in the context of a movie. I can't imagine – Hugh Jackman wearing like, you know, skin tight yellow and blue spandex. What the studios have learned from the failure of past comic book, uh, you know, efforts is you got to keep it true. You got to keep it. If you're not going to be exactly true to, to the look, at least be true to the essence of the characters. And I think that that for the most part has existed. And the other thing is why I think comic book movies are so successful for the most part is that you've got, you know, in most cases, decades, if not like with characters like, you know, Superman and Batman, 75 plus years of story material to draw from. And if you think about it, it's like this is why television is better than most movies these days. So, so much television, television excels is because you have a writer's room and it's a lot of people contributing ideas. And then it's people being checked on their ideas. If there's a bad idea, that idea, like other people will pick it apart. And I think that, that that style of creativity, you end up with better material. And I think that with comic books, you have decades. You've got all these writers who have added things. So if you look at like the history of a comic book character, so many people contribute, whether it's a, an illustrator contributing an idea, whether it's a writer contributing idea. If you take the combined efforts of everyone who ever worked on a Fantastic Four comic or a Batman comic, every writer, every editor, every illustrator, colorist, all of those people contributed creatively to making that thing. So when a filmmaker comes along, they have the benefit of hundreds, if not thousands of people who have spent decades thinking about, talking about, I mean, and, 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 and just mulling over what the essence of a character is. So that when a Chris Nolan comes along, he can cherry pick things he likes as the best bits. And if you look at the Dark Knight trilogy by Christopher Nolan, it's a greatest hits of the Batman comic. So that's why that's my rant about why comic book movies are so good now. It's because they have so much material to draw from. And I think they're smarter about it. I mean, we can get into a whole discussion about the failures of the DC movies. You know, there's a lot to discuss. But for the most part, these comic book films, you know, Deadpool, the Marvel movies, they're kicking ass. And I think there's a reason for it. There's a reason they're dominating at the box office and there's a reason that they're, you know, both creatively and uh, financially successful. So the film threat issue on the Fantastic Four was really kind of the only document for a long time that this movie even existed because – in this pre-internet age, it wasn't like we were getting photos from the set posted on Twitter every single day. We weren't getting, you know, updates coming through our Facebook about this kind of stuff. So really, it could have just been a rumor for so many years. On one hand, I really appreciate what you did, how you covered it and everything. But I'm curious, as the editor of Film Threat, was there any kind of repercussions as far as why did you put this movie on the cover magazine that's that never came out. I mean, obviously you have no control over that, but did you ever get any kind of flack for that? It, it depends. I've always gotten flack for like film threat should do this. And it, what would, what always bother me is the sort of, um, you know, entitled people saying this is what film threat should be. Film threat is uh, frankly, it's my obsessions, 
right? So Film Threat is a culmination of my obsessions. Yes, it tends to run on the weirder or the cult or, you know, the indie, but not always, you know. And and whenever we covered anything mainstream, we would try to cover it in a way that no one else was covering it. So we would come at it from a different angle. It's like, I'm not going to compete with Premier Entertainment Weekly, but I can cover this differently. And And we did have a rule, Film Threat covered movies that, were made indie movies made for over a hundred thousand dollars or you know if we covered anything that was mainstream we would cover it differently and kind of like even when we covered like batman returns i hired a friend of mine who's a district attorney for the and he's an assistant district attorney for the city of los angeles and he went through the first 1989 batman movie and went through all the crimes that batman committed and if he was going to prosecute batman as a vigilante, how much time he would serve in jail and what the charges would be. And he, he actually took it very seriously. So that's just one example of whenever we covered something mainstream, we would do it differently. So, and then Film Threat Video Guide covered movies that were made for under $100,000. So very low budget underground and indie movies. In my mind, between Film Threat Video Guide and Film Threat Magazine, we we would have all of our bases covered. And of course, there's big mainstream stuff that we would just completely ignore. But we didn't get flack for it so much as like we got the questions. You know, it's not like a, a regular person could just sit up there and call Roger Corman's company and say, hey, when is Fantastic Four coming out? For years, people would ask me. And it was just one of those lost movies. And And of course, there never was an official comment, either from Corman or anything else. And he even kind of like skirts the question in that documentary. You know, it does seem like, there was some backroom deal made to get that movie shot and made, just get it released, and to fulfill this legal goal of of holding on to the rights. It, it just felt that way. So, but but no one could ever say those words. Um, and then a lot of the theories were that like you know Corman was paid a fee, like here's the producer fee, and pocketed a chunk of the money, so almost none of the money was used to make the movie. Yeah, after seeing the costumes and some of the special effects, I can kind of see that. Yeah, yeah, that it, that's not a real stretch, is it? When you actually look at it, it's like it's not a stretch, right? Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it it definitely seems like something. I mean, not that it was nefarious or done for evil, but Corman was offered money to get a movie made and shot by a certain time, and then that movie was intended to be shelved. But no one who worked on the movie knew that that's what was happening. They thought they were making a movie. So it's so it's almost like, in a way, they were kind of punked, you know, everyone who worked on it. Okay, we are back and we are talking about Doomed. Now, it's interesting that I heard about Doomed, I don't know, it feels like, yeah, you said a year. I want to say we might have heard about this a couple years ago. It seems like this just has been kind of lurking around. I want to say I heard about it right around the time I heard that they were making the uh, the Death of Superman Lives, What Happened. And I was 
I was actually more excited about the Fantastic Four movie than I was about The Death of Superman Lives just because I thought that I knew everything there was to know about The Death of Superman Lives, whereas I didn't know jack about why the, the you know, I, I kind of had the rumors of why the Fantastic Four movie wasn't released, but I never knew for sure. And I was looking for that tell-all documentary. Death of Superman Lived came out last year and i just kept waiting 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 you know come on let, let's do this doom thing so i was so glad when it finally came out but it's interesting that now we live in a time where we have multiple of these documentaries about movies that were either slated to be like a Hodorowski's dune or movies that kind of were there but the vision changed, kind of like the uh, the the Island of Dr. Moreau documentary. I'm kind of glad that we now live in a time where we have all of these things to tell us about projects that might have happened or might have been significantly different. But now with Doomed, it's a project that really happened, but they're still, they, they you know, are still keeping the movie from us in a way, I suppose. Yeah, I love all these kind of documentaries. I find them fascinating. I, too, was looking forward to the Superman Lives one, but I was looking forward to Doomed more because there's actually an end product that we were able to see, even if it's not official. Whereas Superman Lives, you know, who knows? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's cool to kind of put this on the slate with all of those that you mentioned. I would even throw this up there with uh, maybe... um Lost in La Mancha, the uh, documentary about Terry Gilliam's uh, ill-fated Don Quixote um, as well, because I, I thought that one was kind of entertaining and weird and interesting. Uh, I mean, my favorite of them is, is of course, Jodorowsky's Dune. But I, I think the thing that it obviously shares with all of them is at the core, and this is something I can relate to as a creative person, uh, is that artist, is that person, uh, be it some of the actors that are in the Fantastic Four film or Jodorowsky or Richard Stanley or whomever, and just how kind of screwed over <laughs> they, they feel they've, they've been um, in, in how they were not able to get their vision either onto film itself or out to the public in the way that it should have been done. There's also a number of great books that cover these kind of movies. And I know Chris Gore did one, like 50 Greatest Movies Never Made or something. But David Hughes has a couple out. One called Tales from Development Hell. The other one is The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made. And there's one that's more recent that I, I can't remember the name of, but it too is good. So there's a little overlap between all of them. But still, you do get a great deal of, of stories about about these films that um, that for whatever reason just never came to be. Oh, that other one is called The Greatest Movie She'll Never See. That one's by Simon Braund, and I recommend all of them. I, I think they're all fun reads. Yeah, I love those as well. The only time I get frustrated, I one of those, and I can't remember which, just is like, well, I feel like I know more about some of these movies than you do writing about them, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. That's because I'm a nerd, you know? And it's like, okay, I, I tried tried to know everything I could about, like, Alien 3 or some of these other things. But then there are other ones where it's just like, you know, I, I would love to investigate whatever happened to The Star is My Destination and why that 
film has never happened and it's been slated with all of these different directors. And whenever we have a chance, you know, I'll try to ask people like, what happened with Supernova? <laughs> Just like some of those movies that, you know, maybe they came out, but they were hacked to pieces or completely changed as they were going through production, you know, had five different directors on them. And it's like, yeah, those are the the, the real fascinating pieces for me are those uh, those tales from development hell or, or production hell. I love that kind of stuff. Or editing bay hell. Especially reading the memoirs of an editor, I really dig that kind of stuff. Especially, you know, well, uh, obviously Walter Murch is fantastic. And reading him talking about how he can change a scene or, or reading how he helped bring back, you know, Touch of Evil. I mean, that kind of stuff. It's like, wow, this is amazing. So if there are books by editors, I usually really just enjoy the hell out of those. Yeah, I'm hoping more of these documentaries can get released. I know several of them are um, crowdfunded, so I assume that since these have been successfully funded, that that will only encourage more of them to be made. Yeah, I hope so. I'm trying to think if I have any outstanding uh, donations out there for any of these, and I think that pretty much everything that I've donated to has finally come to fruition. The only thing that I can think of that is out there, but I have yet to see, is that documentary about the making of Pet Cemetery. But again, that's the making of a film, so it's not a film that never came to be. And I don't think that that was one of these doomed productions. There's also that RoboCop um, documentary. I think I gave to that one about the making of RoboCop. So that'll be cool for some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, that maybe uh, we didn't uh, we didn't quite know everything about for us completists, I guess. I've never heard of either of those documentaries, and I'm ready to see both of them right now. Yeah, I've been waiting for that Pet Cemetery one for a while, and that's one of them where I've been kind of trying to chase down the you know the people involved with the production. It's like, hey, I really want to feature you on the show. So that that's kind of like with Marty Langford. Like, I reached out to him so long ago. Like, soon as Doomed is ready, let me know. I want to promote it on the show. So I'm really glad that we're able to do this. You know, especially on the eve of it being available on VOD, and then from what I remember, it should be on DVD by December. So perfect for your you know nerdy loved ones who want to know more about the making of the ill-fated Fantastic Four film. You know what's great about these, um, even these sort of uh, newer behind the scenes on a little more obscure films or culty kind of items is that for me, it's kind of like, and, and I think they're still up on Netflix, but there used to be a series. I think they're called classic albums. I don't know if you've watched. Those. Oh, I love those where it's usually an hour. They take one record and then they try to talk to everybody who was in the band. And then there's also the aspect of they often find the recording engineer or it's a member of the band, and they put them in the studio with the master tapes and the tracks, and they sit there and they mess with the board and they pull out the guitar and the bass and all, you know, the drums out and all that. So you can hear some of the isolated tracks and like how the whole thing was built. So, so for like nerds like me who are into like how things get made and what people are thinking, like I'm a big fan of process. Uh, obviously, uh, the projection booth <laughs> during my time being on the show with you, Mike, has allowed me to just swim in the giant ocean of process when it comes to all these movies. It's just a wonderful series, and I think that films like this just kind of feed into that for me. 
when they sit at that board and they start turning down those levels and just isolating like the drum track or the bass or the guitar and stuff, just like, uh, you know, of course I'm a huge meatloaf fan. So it's just like, yeah, listen to this guitar solo by Todd Rundgren and how it sounds like a motorcycle. It's like, yeah, yeah, this works. I, I love this. You know, I do that for every track across this entire album and tell me stories while you're doing it, please. I mean, so good. I love that series as well. That they, And sometimes I'll even watch them for albums that I don't even care for. But it's like, yeah, all right. I, I just want to know the process of you guys putting it together. Yeah, I wish there were a series like that for these kind of films. Um, I know that there's was an AMC series called Backlot for a while. But it seemed to, I mean, it was obviously made by a studio and they were only 30 minutes. They didn't dive that deeply. They're probably no better than just a DVD special feature, but beats nothing. I think a lot of that for me came from, and I want to call I want to say it was Lights, Camera, Action with, um, was it, Leonard Nimoy as the host. Does that sound familiar at all? It was a, a series that was on Nickelodeon when I was a kid, and it seemed like they only had about maybe four episodes, and they just kind of rotated the, <laughs> those all the time. But it was bizarre because it was like Monty Python and the Meaning of Life, um, uh, Dark Crystal. And I don't even remember what all else, but I just remember seeing the behind the scenes of Monty Python and the meaning of life over and over and over again. So when I finally saw the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, I know how they did this. I know how they did the, the fish head thing where they're in the tank. And I know how they did the, uh, you know, the, the bug bite scene in, in this. And it's just like, I don't know why. Well, especially like Dark Crystal, I can understand, but Monty Python and the Meaning of Life just seems kind of inappropriate for a, a kid's uh, network. But, hey, what you going to do? It's all behind-the-scenes stuff. So, But, yeah, just uh, that was something that I really, really enjoyed when I was a child, and I maybe that kind of warped me back then. <laughs> Warp? Was that a pun? Uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it was. Yeah, I'm full of bad pun this episode. All right, guys. Thanks again for coming on the show. I'm glad that you can make it. I'm glad that we were able to uh, rearrange schedules for this. I really do appreciate that. So, Rob, what is happening with you these days? Well, by the time you hear this, uh, the first record on my label uh, should be available in this fabulous week of mid-October. It is MC Nightshade and the Theater Bazaar Orchestra, MC Nightshade being the... Uh, the name for David J. of Bauhaus and Love and Rockets. Doing a little cabaret jazz thing with some great folks here in Detroit. Um, I'd have to say if you like Nick Cave and Tom Waits, uh, but maybe a little bit of sort of that three-penny opera kind of thing going on and uh, love of carnies and uh, circus sideshows, then maybe this is the record for you. You can find out more about it at uh, hfvinyl.com. That's HF, Harold Frank Vinyl, as in Hold Fast. Dot com and um, just uh, doing a bunch of stuff and uh, the the name of the devil was brought up on the episode and I mean that in the most loving way possible Mr. Chris Gore and um, I'm working on something with him but I can't tell you anything about it so I don't like carnies they have little hands smell like cabbage <laughs> yes yeah and how about you Rod what's keeping you busy well unfortunately work I shouldn't say unfortunately that's bad I, I do need that job. Other than that, trying to keep uh, flickattack.com updated and bookgasm.com updated. Haven't been able to quite 
find enough free time to do both every single day, but I try as best as I can. Is there a review of Doomed, the untold story of blah, 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 over at your website? There's not one yet, but I will work on that so that by the time this episode comes out, people can go to flickattack.com and read the review of Doomed. But no, I, uh, I do have a review of the Josh Trank Fantastic Four, if you want to read that. Um, and some I'll, someday I'll have to dig out my old review of the, the, the Corman Fantastic Four and from the pages of Hitch magazine and post that because that, as I recall, it was a pretty long review. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find links over to Rob St. Mary's stuff. You can find links over to Rod Lott's stuff. And you can also find links over to our Patreon page where you can donate to help the show. Or you can link on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. Or you can do both. I'm not going to stop you. Every rating, every review, every donation that we get helps the projection booth to take over the world. I'm going to tell you a story about an invisible girl towards the thing and more. You got Mr. Fantastic. Now he's Bobby Celeste. Got the fantastic four. Take a pogo plane, computer brain, fantastic car and more. Stack them all together in a penthouse pad. Got the fantastic four. Sue belongs to Reed, and he can stretch it more. And when Sue's kid brother yells, flame on, got the fantastic four. A weird-looking face from outer space called Skrull, now he chewed Reed to the core. But his plans to enslave, send them to the grave, were upset by the fantastic four.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.